2: Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today we're pleased to speak to Brother Hamza. Assalamu alaikum, Akhi Hamzaz. Happy to have you back on again.
3: <laughs> wa alaikum, wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hi. Hey. How
2: are you? Alhamdulillah. Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, so good to see you. So good to see you. May Allah bless you. for the opportunity. Good to have you here again. Hamza is a popular Islamic speaker and essayist. He has a master's and a postgraduate certificate in philosophy from the University of London. And he is currently continuing his postgraduate studies in the field. He is the author of the popular book, The Divine Reality God, Islam, and the Mirage of Atheism. And he is also the founder and CEO of the Sapiens Institute. Today, we're going to talk about the hard problem of consciousness. What can better explain consciousness, theism or naturalism? Inshallah, Brother Hamza is going to enlighten us on this subject today. So without further ado, Khi Hamza, the floor is all yours.
3: Tazak lahir. So, okay, bismillah ar-Rahman rahim In alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu alayhi wa Allah. My dear brothers and sisters, salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Tazak akhi. My dear brother for facilitating this and being patient, because I know we actually postponed this once or twice, and it was, I think, my fault. So may Allah bless you for your forbearance and your your sabr So let's first start with this I think this is probably the easiest way to discuss the problem And the reason I want to start with a stone and a bunch of butterflies Is because it sets the scene, the kind of metaphysical scene or the philosophical scene if you like Because a lot of the concepts that we're going to be articulating they can be a little bit heavy. So I'm going to try my best to make them as light as possible. So here's a question. Can this stone feel the the, the wings of fluttering butterflies? Okay. Well, intuitively, we're going to say, no, that's not the case. Why? Because the stone is cold, it's dead, and it's blind. In other words, it doesn't have any intentional force. It cannot see anything. It's not aware of itself. It's not aware of anything outside of itself. In other words, in the language of consciousness or the philosophy of the mind, it has no intentionality. It is not about or of something. There is no awareness. It doesn't have the ability to contain meaning, if you like. So the stone is unable to feel the flutterings of a bunch of butterflies. Now, I want you to remember this stone for later. And the reason I'm mentioning this, because if you think about it, if this universe is what you would call a universe that is physicalist, or it's in line with metaphysical naturalism, which is basically the view that there is no God, there is no divine, there is no supernatural, there is no non-physical, and everything can be explained by physical phenomena in some way, then the reality is, well, this whole universe is like a stone, right? Because physical processes are cold. In other words, they don't have any intentional force behind them. They're not of or about anything. Also, they are, they are blind and they're not aware of themselves or aware of anything outside of themselves. So this whole universe is like one large stone. So how on earth can it produce something like consciousness, specifically the ability to have inner subjective conscious experiences? And how can we explain this person first person fact that we have inner subjective conscious experiences you know if this whole universe is made up of cold blind physical processes and this is a very important question or bunch of questions that we want to ask and I think it sets the scene so remember this stone for later so here's some terms so the first thing to understand is, I'm going to try and emulate the academic literature, the language that's used. So terms like physicalism and materialism are going to be used interchangeably and others have used this, have used them interchangeably. Now, interestingly, you have to understand that the two terms have separate histories, if you like. They've got particular context and specific differences. But in the philosophy of the mind, these terms are used interchangeably interchangeably. And when we're going to use the term physicalism, essentially what we're basically saying is, and this is echoing Michael Tai, we're basically going to say that physicalism is the thesis that no non-physical ingredients are needed to account for anything in the actual world. The physical ingredients alone suffice. Now, how that happens and in what way, that's the discussion that that physicalists are having but essentially physicalism is that you can reduce reality or you could explain reality to in in line with or reduce to in some way to physical processes and even you even if you can't reduce them to physical processes they are explained by physical processes in some way as Stoja says in one of the articles you can find online in on in, in one of the academic uh, encyclopedias, he basically argues that it's necessitated by or supervenes on the physical, which is this very fancy language to echo what Michael Tai actually says. Reality can be explained by physical processes in some way, either reduced to or explained way in a non-reductive way, all right? So that's what we're basically saying when we're talking about physicalism. And when you're talking about naturalism, metaphysical naturalism, which generally speaking is the deen, is the worldview of many atheists, not all of them for sure um because there are some academic atheists who are not naturalists, they believe in non-naturalistic accounts for consciousness, for example, which we're not going to be discussing today and I'm going to talk about that a bit later, but you have like, for example, David Chalmers he he adopts physicalism, which is generally speaking a kind of non-physicalist account of consciousness so and he and he's an atheist. so not all atheists are, metaphysical naturalist but many are especially the ones on the street right and if it looks like a duck and it acts like a duck then it's a duck right because if you ask them is there god they'll say no many of them would definitely say no if they're atheists but that also is a debate because many would say well i don't believe in god but i believe in a higher power but they would still call themselves atheists so i do get that there are nuances but generally speaking they would say There is no God, okay? You'll ask him, is there a God? They'll say no. Then you say, do you believe in the supernatural? Most likely, many of them will say no. Do you believe in the non-physical? No. Do you believe that reality, the universe, can be explained by physical phenomena in some way? they say yes. And this echoes a kind of Dawkins' approach to metaphysics. I know he probably doesn't believe in metaphysics much, or he wants to deny it, but that's his metaphysical outlook. And he mentions this in the God Delusion, I believe, on page 14. He says, you know, atheists... Believe that you know we could explain things, physically in in you know, in in light of the physical sciences. So, I hope that provides some kind of nuance. Is that clear, bro? Can I move to the next slide? Because I want you to slide check. I want you to check every slide. If I've if I've yeah, if I'm, I think it's...
2: that's clear. I mean, just as a very quick slide tangent, but uh, it's funny because there are, there are studies out there that that estimate that you know twenty percent of atheists still have superstitious beliefs. Right, and they still believe in like uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the number thirteen is bad luck or omens and whatnot. And, you know, oh, obviously wow. that 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 still involves the supernatural world, you know. So I, I just find that ironic. But, but I can't go off yeah. on a tangent, but just to kind of reinforce something that you said that not not necessarily every single atheist is a pure hard physical.
3: Agreed, and I I would argue that 100% of atheists believe in superstition anyway So if you (laughs) deny the code, you're superstitious, but that's a different debate Yeah. So, alhamdulillah, let's move on So some preliminary notes Now, what we're going to be doing, we're going to be exploring the argument that theism is a more current metaphysical explanation Compared to the physicalist accounts of consciousness, yeah? And we'll be delving into kind of the neuroscientific explanations, which assumes physicalism, because we're going to go into the idea that neuroscience has its own metaphysical assumptions, which are physicalist in nature. And we'll argue that neuroscience, by virtue of that, by virtue of the fact that it has physicalist assumptions, cannot explain the hard problem of consciousness. And it's important to note that we will not be discussing the non-physicalist approaches to consciousness, such as you know, for various forms of panpsychism or epiphenomenalism. And that's going to be the front of another webinar. Now, even though that we're even though we're going to go through the some of the physicalist approaches like eliminative materialism and reductive materialism and functionalism, you have to understand that I'm not we're not critiquing them as explanations of consciousness in general, because that's there's, there's loads of material academic uh, research material concerning that it's a specific critique with regards to the hard problem of consciousness which we're going to discuss so that's something very important to unpack and also we're not going to go into the empirical theories which rest upon the physicalist approaches to the philosophy of the mind so you may have for example something like eliminative materialism as a broad metaphysic if you like to explain the hard problem of consciousness and consciousness in general when actual fact you'll find out in a few moments eliminative materialism doesn't explain the hard problem at all it actually denies it yeah but anyway um uh, what what uh, uh, these empirical approaches may you know, rest upon something like eliminative materialism, but these there'll be various forms of those empirical approaches with very fancy names. We're not going to go into those because it's not necessary because they rest upon uh, the key metaphysical approaches to explain consciousness. Consciousness, and once you can undermine them, then it just follows that the empirical theories actually fail to explain the hard problem because if they rest upon these key uh, approach phys- physicalist approaches to explain consciousness or in this in our context a hard problem and they can't do so then it follows that the empirical theories that rest upon those physicalist approaches can't explain the hard problem either is that clear yeah good so this is what we're going to learn right um and sometimes you know in a paradoxical sense i'm going to learn this too because every time you articulate something i've articulated this so many times you just have other insights right so that's the that's the beautiful thing of sharing sharing itself is a form of learning Allah akbar you know i think that's deep yeah uh, if i have to say so myself so this is what we're going to learn We're going to learn what the hard problem of consciousness is, because people mistake the hard problem of consciousness and they think it's just an epistemic problem, it's a problem of knowledge, there is an epistemic gap. No, there's an ontological aspect, what's the source and nature of our conscious experiences of inner subjective conscious states. And we're going to uh, explain why physicalism is not an adequate explanation for the hard problem of consciousness. And we're going to show how neuroscience is unable to solve the hard problem of consciousness. You could, you know, do as many correlations as you like because neuroscience is basically a science of correlations. You could do as many correlations as you want. In actual fact, you can map out all the brain in every single way, and you still won't be able to address the hard or answer the two main questions of the hard problem of consciousness. And we're we're going to explain why. And As one brother who's a friend once told me, he said neuroscience is basically pixelated phrenology. You know, phrenology is a study of the brain, pixelated phrenology. And we're also going to argue by virtue of that science cannot deal with inner subjective conscious experiences. Then we're going to talk about a theistic metaphysic does not reject neuroscience. This is very important to understand just because you have a theistic explanation. We're not throwing the neurobiological studies out of the window. Of course not. We're accepting them. But the theistic metaphysical framework accepts the science and explains what the science can't. So we have a more coherent metaphysical explanation that explains reality. And that's the nature of metaphysics, right? You have first principles. You have lenses you put on your intellectual eyes, if you like, in order to understand yourself and reality. Now, if those lenses are restricting you from understanding reality, then uh, you change them, right? And we're saying atheistic metaphysics is far more coherent, more rational, more intuitive, and in line with your fitra, your innate disposition. So we're gonna explain why theism is an adequate metaphysical explanation of consciousness in, in with regards to the hard problem of consciousness. And we're gonna go into AI. Artificial intelligence, how it cannot be conscious. Now, the reason we're going to go into AI, because when we talk about emergent materialism, one would argue that, you know, AI can be conscious. And this is an example of emergence, emergent materialism. And we're going to try and unpack why AI is not going to be fully conscious. And we're going to make a distinction between strong AI and weak AI and get into that. And then finally, as I like doing all the time when we have these abstract intellectual arguments, we have to link it back to the essence of the deen, which is the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the fact that he must be obeyed, we must be humble before him, we must submit to him, we must have fear of him, positive fear. And we must love him, and we must direct and single out all our acts of worship to Allah alone, the internal acts of worship and the external acts of worship, the actions of the qalb, the heart, and the actions of the limbs as well. And that's very important for us to do. Is that clear? Perfect. Good. Good slide check. MashaAllah, Basam is on fire. <laughs> right what is what is the hard problem yani the problem here yeah i know this is an academic channel but yani let's bring our characters into this <laughs> debate,
2: right
3: uh, what Humanize is the, hard... the speaker, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is the hard problem of consciousness uh this is my coping mechanism bro because my head is like uh, there's a bit of pressure like intellectual pressure because I, as i told you earlier offline uh I, i'm delivering something and I've been researching queer theory, Judith Butler, Gail Rubin, uh, Foucault, Derrida, and uh, all of these people, and I uh, all of these, you know. Reading them is,
2: is quite depressing, and it could burn you out, so. Uh, yeah, it's. Yeah. <laughs> let, out, let out your frustration here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so what is the hard problem
3: of consciousness? You know, it's very interesting. According to queer theorists, everything that we're talking about is nonsense anyway, really, in general, right? <laughs> because uh, even like uh, they're, they're radically skeptic, which echoes a form of applied postmodernism. They say biology, science, um, is there is no objective truth, right? And you only understand biology and science through socialization the language that you use. Yeah. And those things are, you know, they're the sources of power and they're misused, and there could be sources of oppression, and they're not objective, and they're not true. And we're gonna challenge that language and challenge that socialization. So everything we're saying, according to the queer theorists, is all like ah, it's not even true. It's just the radical skeptics from that perspective. Yeah? Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: Anyway, I just thought I'd add that in there. Interesting, uh yeah. interesting uh
2: digression. <laughs> interesting intersection. intersection. <laughs> That's the word they call. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm so, sure p- p- plenty of pun is intended there, but yeah. But now yeah, back to uh, uh, hard problem of consciousness. The hard problem. Okay, so the hard problem of consciousness. So look,
3: the hard problem of consciousness, and this term I believe was was coined by David Chalmers, but we had the famous essay by subhanAllah, His name just escapes me now. Nagel, yes, Thomas Nagel. Oh, Thomas he Nagel. wrote in, in, in 1973.
2: Oh, well, Are the bat right?
3: But yeah, what is yeah. it like to be a bat, basically? Like a bat? Yeah. And he he basically frames it from the point of view that this is a first person fact, first person experience, mm. and the the third person language of science cannot access that. And that's and he's basically saying, you know, uh, science is limited from that point of view. Mm. So uh, the hard problem of consciousness is basically to do with two main questions. Okay, mm. and before I get into it, I'm going to give you an example, right? Say everyone's looking at Basam MashaAllah, TabarakAllah His beautiful face Absolutely. You know, may Allah beautify his life And beautify his life even more And, and beautify his Akhira And grant him and his family Jannatul dos And the best in this life And the best in life to come Everyone say Allah, I,
2: mean, I mean.
3: Good, so Imagine Basam now do you, do you have a cup with you next to you bro? Like a cup or a tea or anything? Beautiful What's in that? Water Water, good. It's not going to be retina, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Retina is this Greek liquor, right? So now the villa, right? So can you just drink some water for him if you don't mind? All right, good. So Basam just had that water, right? Now Basam just experienced an inner subjective conscious experience. There is an inner subjective state which is also termed as. Phenomenal consciousness, phenomenal phenomenal state, in other words, an inner subjective conscious state. And he's experienced that by drinking water. Now, the question is, do we know what it's like for Bassem to drink water? Now, you may say, yeah, because I'm drinking water. But hold on a second. That's not the point here. Hmm. The point is, do you know Bassem's experience, the experience that he had just now, sitting on his chair in his room, talking to me, having that water with a particular temperature and so on and so forth, he just sipped it and he had an inner subjective conscious experience. Do we know what it's like for Basam to have that inner subjective conscious experience? You would say, well, yeah, because I have it. Yeah, but there's a problem here. That's your inner subjective conscious experience. We We don't know what it's like for him to have that inner subjective conscious experience. Now, one would argue, well... I can map out his brain and see all the neurochemical firings or the neurobiological happenings and I can correlate it to that particular experience and therefore we've, we've got it. Well, no, because that's just correlation. Even if every time he had a sip of water, he had exactly the same neurochemical firings, which doesn't happen in literature, by the way, that the, the, the we don't even understand the brain to that degree to even have exactly the same neurochemical firings to map out a particular experience. But we're going to discuss that later. But even if you have to understand everything that happens in the brain, how does it now follow that just because you saw all of these neurochemical firings, now, you know, that he's having that particular conscious experience. Yeah. But what is that inner subjective conscious experience? Oh, we can ask him. Okay. Ask him then. It's cold. It's crispy. It's, I don't know silky God knows how he's going to explain it right and you may think that since you've used those words in a particular context then you exactly know what his experience is but again that's a big problem because words are vehicles to meaning and meaning is a representation of your in this context your inner subjective conscious experience now, I know that opens the door to different approaches to the philosophy of language we're not going to get into but generally speaking What does it mean for him that this liquid is cold or it's silky or it's, you know, refreshing that we cannot access because. Can't can't someone uh, argue?
2: Uh, Can't someone argue? Well, I'm a human being. Uh, Bassam is a human being and uh, water is water. And there's no reason to uh, think that Bassam's experience will differ from anyone else's. So just as I'm a human being and I know how water tastes like and how good it feels to quench my thirst, I have no reason to believe that the sound would feel or experience anything different. Yeah, they, they could try and make that argument, but uh,
3: that would basically say, therefore, that if we have the same experience, we're always going to have the same inner subjective conscious experience. So if we have the same physical reality, whether it's punching a bag, getting punched in the face, getting run over, um, kissing our beloveds, hugging a brother, eating a chocolate. These are physical experiences that we're experiencing, and they're all the same. If those things are all the same, then it follows, then your inner subjective conscious experience of those physical things is going to be the same as well. And that doesn't follow. (laughs) And we even see this even with people's perception of pain, Right. And, you know, if you're an athlete, for example, you will know you may get punched in the face in exactly the same place with the same pressure and with the same um, uh, force. People's inner subjective conscious experience of that is going to be fundamentally different, even in the way that they expressed it as well. Now, there's much more to unpack there, but I think there is a false assumption just because the external experience or the external reality is the same. Therefore,
2: one's experience of that is going to be the same. It just a second question a, yeah. a second question uh, yeah, sure. the, the first question that you have posed right now is it an epistemic problem or an ontological problem
3: it's an epistemic one because we're talking about how can we know so the, oh. so what we'll, we'll, in the literature they say there is an epistemic gap now yeah, yeah. and this leads to the second question which is well okay we can't really deny, unless you're a limited materialist, you can't really deny that we have inner subjective conscious experiences because for me, that's the equivalent of denying your humanity, right? So, you have inner subjective conscious experiences, how do these inner subjective conscious experiences arise from seemingly cold, non-conscious, neurobiological processes or physical processes, just like the stone argument that we presented, presented earlier? presented the
2: ontological problem, yeah
3: yeah so it's the source and nature of something so we have the epistemic question what is it like for a particular organism in other words uh basam in 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 the example that we gave what is it like for basam to have a, a particular phenomenal conscious experience or inner subjective conscious experience and the other which is an epistemic question and the second question is an ontological one the source and nature of our inner subject inner subjective conscious experiences or phenomenal experiences how do they arise? And why do they arise from seemingly cold, non-conscious physical processes? Because if you're a physicalist, generally speaking, you're not gonna really claim that physical processes have intentionality, meaning they're about or of something, yeah? Physical process doesn't have awareness. An electron, a bunch of electrons arranged in a particular way, they don't have awareness, right? If you were to assume that, then you're not a physicalist anymore, really, right? <laughs> so these are the two key questions, and you know, there, there's a big reading list at the end of the presentation, uh, you know, here I quote Wilson, Perry, Wright, Chalmers, Alter, and they talk about the hard problem of consciousness. Is this clear so far?
2: Sure.
3: So these are the two main questions: an epistemic question and an and an ontological question. So echoing the epistemic question, we have Professor David Chalmers. He says, the really hard problem of consciousness is the problem of experience. When we think and perceive, there is aware of information processing, but there's also a subjective aspect. What unites all these states is that there is something it is like to be in them. All of them are states of experience. If any problem qualifies as the problem of consciousness, it is this one. In this central sense of consciousness, an organism and a mental state is conscious if there is something it is like to be in that state. And... Professor Torin, uh, philosopher Torin Alta, he basically articulates the, he also articulates the ontological aspect to the problem. He says, how does my brain's activity generate those experiences? Why those and not others? Indeed, why is any physical event accompanied by conscious experience? The set of such problems is known as the hard problem of consciousness. Even after all the associated functions and abilities are explained, one might reasonably wonder why there is something it is like to see letters appear on a computer screen so let's get into you know the the meat of everything right the can physicalism solve the hard problem of consciousness so the first thing to talk about is the mary argument frank Jacks, jackson's famous thought experiment argument so what i'm gonna do is i'm just gonna read you uh that uh That argument, inshaAllah Just bear with me So this is an argument by Frank Jackson, okay So I'm I'm quoting uh, from Frank Jackson right now Mary has lived in a black and white room all her life And acquires information about the world via black and white computers and televisions In her room Mary has access to all of the scientific objective information about what happens when humans see physical phenomena. She knows everything about the science related to perceiving objects with the human eye. Yet, she is unaware of what it is like to see colors. One day, she's allowed to leave her room. The moment she opens the door, she looks at a red rose and experiences the color red for the first time. She only appreciates the color red the moment she sees it. Her knowledge about all of the physical facts concerning visual perception and colors did nothing to prepare her for the new experience of seeing red. She did not know what it is like to see a red rose by learning physical facts. She only knew what that experience was like the moment it occurred. By the way, I think that was my summary. Uh, but that's the song of frank jackson's argument i'm reading from my book that's why yeah Yeah, uh, clear enough (laughs) yeah so so in essence this is quite an intuitive argument right so if you've been if you know all the physical facts right about colors and science and the science of perception and the eye but all you've experienced all your life is is black and gray and white and you've been in this room all your life and you open the door and you see a red rose do you learn something new? Do you now know what it's like to experience a red rose? Mm-hmm. So you could formulate an argument from this thought experiment by saying, well, Mary knows all of the physical facts, but she doesn't know all of, all of the facts because she now has experienced what it's like to see a red rose. Therefore, the physical facts do not exhaust all the facts.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: In other words, you could formulate it in this way, and this is Sharma's uh, argument, he, he actually developed it in this way he says there are truths about consciousness that are not deducible from physical truths because if that were the case then mary would have known what it's like she'd be like oh yeah i know that yeah i've never seen it before but since i know all the physical facts i've just seen the red rose halas, right but that's not the case so he says there are truths about consciousness that are not deducible from physical truths if there are truths about consciousness that are not deducible from physical truths, then materialism is false Therefore, materialism is false. Now, there is there are arguments against the, the Mary thought experiment. Like, for example, Brian Law's phenomenal concept strategy and so on and so forth. But to be honest, to get into that, we'll need another couple of seminars, especially the phenomenal concept strategy, because there are different conceptions of the phenomenal concept strategy, mm-hmm. which is basically saying that you have one substance or one property, which is the physical property, but you have two concepts. You have a physical functional concept and you have a phenomenal concept like a uh inner subjective con- consciousness concept yeah and there are arguments against that i even wrote an essay on this for my ma it's day Yanni; he would be here all day but i just want to mention it so we're, so there are discussions around this yeah
2: but when it, when it comes to a, a situation like this is it beneficial to uh, maybe distinguish between propositional and experiential knowledge Whereby you know experiential knowledge does really add something, um, does really uh, provide more substantive knowledge in a given situation. That sometimes you really can't know something until you experience it yourself, and just merely knowing the propositional facts about a given about given thing will not, you know, give you that full encapsulating. Uh, understanding of that concept unless unless it's coupled with experiential
3: i need to think about that because they would argue that the experiential knowledge is still uh you could still reduce it or refer to physical reality right Mm. so you have to be a bit more specific what you mean by experience like you, you know um because you know in in popular language that would seem that you're making a distinction between abstract knowing and actually experiencing it for yourself but the physicalists would argue well once you experience something for yourself that is not necessarily um something that cannot be learned yeah. through uh you know um through uh, yeah,
2: just, just reading the facts about it, reading the yeah, proposition yeah. Yeah. yeah, through the the yeah, physical I, mean, I, I certainly, I certainly wouldn't uh, state that this applies to every single thing in every single case. But yeah, you know, to me at least, in the yeah. in the Mary argument, yeah. th- that it that it that it clearly does apply. That that uh, you you need to experience seeing colors uh, in order to really know what colors are, uh, and that just you know, uh, uh, restricting yourself to reading propositional facts about uh, about colors uh, wouldn't yeah. suffice. Um, Yeah. So, so yeah,
3: intuitively that, 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 that makes sense, but uh, in some way, and I need to think about this, this relates to the ability hypothesis, right? So uh, the objection to Mary's argument is what they call the ability hypothesis. So, uh, and I had this in my book, and basically the hypothesis asserts that Mary doesn't gain any new knowledge, but only acquires new abilities, so they may argue, if they refer to the ability hypothesis, that you, the experience, you're not gaining new knowledge, you're just getting, gaining a new ability. Yeah. So, for example, when someone learns how to ride a bike, they're not learning new things about the bike, they simply acquire the ability to ride it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and this is quite good that you preempted this because that actually links to the ability hypothesis. So, they, so, you know, they may argue and say, well, yeah, but your distinction is kind of false because... When you experience something, so you may you may know something in the app in the abstract, in abstraction, like in a textbook, you've read everything about it, you know everything about its physicality, but you now experience that thing that 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 textbook is referring to is not really learning new knowledge. You're just gaining an ability, right? You're not you're not learning nothing new, right? However, there is an argument to this, and this is like, um, uh, and that's why intuitively what you're saying is right. When you experience something, you actually not only Learn an ability, but you also learn new facts as well. And this is, and if you apply this to the bike example, you'll get it. So one would argue the ability hypothesis is a inadequate objection because if Mary gains new abilities when she sees the room, then it's also possible that she gains new facts that she did not have prior to leaving the room. Why not? Still a possibility. If you if you gain new abilities, then you could gain new facts too. So when you refer this back to the bike, when someone learns how to ride a bike they do not only acquire the ability to do so, they also gain new facts. For example, if someone is riding downhill really, really fast, they eventually learn not to constantly use the brakes, as this will cause the rims to overheat. Uh, for controlled descent, the brakes must gently be squeezed with around two second pulses, right? So um, the way to counter the ability hypothesis is saying, well, number one, if, if you think that, know just to save physicalism you're just saying she gains new abilities well if she gains new abilities then it also logically follows you could gain new facts too why not why are you trying to save physicalism just because this thought experiment is uh uh, is intuitive and it's counter your worldview? the other thing is well when you gain new abilities you also gain new knowledge too right and the bike example is a really good example you could read everything about a bike right knowledge about a bike and then when you start riding the bike, you now ha- you don't gain nothing new about the bike, but you gain a new ability. But that new ability can also lead to new knowledge as well, could get leads to knowledge. And that's one kind of um objection to the objection which is called the ability hypothesis. The
2: ability hypothesis which tries to explain the Mary argument. Is that clear? That's clear. Have you ever come across any naturalist that just wants to bite the bullet? Yeah, you know what, uh, Hamza? Yeah, you're right. Uh, we we probably can't. I probably can't really know how you feel when you're eating a, a nice, juicy watermelon or mango or whatever. Right. I, I probably really don't know. And you know what? I could live my life happily not caring. It's not a problem for me. It's uh, you're calling it a problem. I don't think it's a problem. I could live my life happily. Uh, that way Uh, is there some kind of bite the bullet uh, attitude or yeah
3: there is so you have like forms of emergence that would argue that so like strong Mm -hmm. emergence would say look we know it's physical because we're justified by virtue of the sciences by virtue of our progress by virtue of all of these things but strong emergent materialism and forms of
2: strong emergent materialism would just basically argue we
3: would never know it's just far too complicated Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, but yeah, but, but that is uh that is a you know quite the bullet bite because I mean who who at the end of the day really wants to admit that we really don't know what other people are experiencing when they fall in love, when they uh you know, but it's head, more than that. their toe, when they eat, you when right, they drink, wants to concede that, right?
3: But it's more than that because you know, I think even Dorcas, I think this is like, you know, the the, the he, well, he, didn't use this language, but it's like the new frontier or the battleground between theism and atheism or naturalism, physicalism is consciousness itself, and it's it's not just about knowing how someone uh, you know what what someone's inner subjective conscious experience is like, because that's neither here or there. We, we you know f- practically and functionally we can say fine. He he's a unique individual, no problem. Um, but that not being able to know gives rise to other questions which challenge physicalism. But the other Im- most important thing in my view is the ontological question. Mm, mm, mm. If you feel physicalism explains phenomena, right? You have the number one phenomenon to d- to deal with, which is consciousness. Yeah. Without consciousness, you don't have anything. You don't have this computer. You don't have um, uh, even the discussion. You don't have the debate. You don't have d- d- science, civilization, I mean, you know, we are, uh, this, is a, this is a miracle, Yanni, yeah, if yeah. you want to think about it, you know, the fact that we are conscious. And let me just, you know, I don't want to bore people to death, so let's give you a bit of a story. The reason I think, uh, one of the reasons that motivated me to get into consciousness, especially when I was doing my MA, is it was a, a kind of a personal experience that I had. So when I was around the age of 11, around 11 to 13 or something, I used to sit in the bath, and I and from what I remember, I used to cry because I realized that I don't, I'm not, like I have friends and family in the outside of the bathroom, right? And I'm sitting in a, in a hot tub, and I'm just thinking to myself, I don't know what they're experiencing, right? I'm only experiencing what I'm experiencing. I have an inner subjective conscious experience right now. I don't have access to those people that I love, to their experiences at this moment. So do they even really exist? Are they real? I know this is a form of solipsism, but it actually really, and I can't even express it, it's very hard to articulate, but it made me feel extremely lonely, right? Very lonely. (laughs)
2: Literally, it's like, well... A lot lot of people go through that, you know, am I, I think I'm the only real mind in this living in this universe. I think a lot of people go through that kind of,
3: uh, yeah, but for me, it was a little bit more, and obviously I would say that because it was, you know, emotive, but it was, it was just not that they have another mind, but their reality, the experience, the, 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 the psychological functioning, if you want to use that terminology, I'm not having any access to that in any way. It's just me. And I'm seeing things only through me. And that's why I think sometimes I would love playing to play a lot, because in play, I got lost. I lost my individuality, Yeah, you know? And that's why as a kid, when you play and you're in the kind of play zone, you actually become one with people in some bizarre way, not in a kind of spiritual way, of course, but you know what I mean. And then two hours is like two minutes. It's like you transcend time and you transcend yourself. And that's, you know, the power thing about play itself, right? Um, and that's why when a kid is natural and they're playing, that's the time to take a picture. But if you tell them to stop and say cheese, you've lost the moment and they freeze, right? Um,
2: I don't know, yeah do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah so you're, you're, you're thinking about this uh from a very young age i mean uh, when i was 11 yeah, yeah, i was just thinking yeah, about yeah. you know what's the next super nintendo game i'm gonna buy but you're, well, you're even now deep questions so. yeah and i was yeah because
3: me <laughs> meaning meaning and that's why i always always chase meaning meaning is everything for me like meaning literally is everything for me like you could give me money and if if you took meaning away i would just throw that money away yeah. yeah. Well, that, that, that meaning, drive and uh, pursue. Imagine of, that, that sense of emptiness. emptiness. Like I sometimes I, say, I said to brothers once. Imagine life without salah. Do you know what I mean? This is like you know this is this is powerful stuff, uh, and I think people, I think people are all this. They they have these intuitions as well, but they get lost in the ephemeral aspects of life. Like making money and looking Mm. good, and Mm. and you know that kind of show, right? But if people really think and they take off the smart, take away their smartphones, take away the busyness of life, and they sit in a room for like twenty four hours without all of that stuff and just literally think,
2: Mm.
3: it would start. You know, that's why we have a meaning crisis in the West. That's why you had the likes of uh, Jean Vervaque, Professor Jean Vervaeke, who's like a friend. I had a couple of discussions with him, and you obviously you have the. The born again Zionist, what's his name, <laughs> Peterson? <Office>. Uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> he's a born again Zionist, right? Uh, not sure Does if he's he... born again right? Uh, whether he believes in God is another story. Not yeah. <laughs> <about> to digress. <laughs> well, what do you mean? What do you mean by God? What do you mean
3: yeah, by belief? Exactly. Right? He, he becomes a postmodernist when it comes to God, right? Exactly. Uh, he's been attacking postmodernism all the time, but he becomes a postmodernist when someone asks him about the God question. But hey, anyway, let's move on. Sure. So that's the Mary argument, right? Sure. So let's start talking about the broad physicalist approaches mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. The, philosophy, the philosophy of the mind that tries to
2: explain consciousness. And we're going to. And, and do each, each of these attempts try to tackle both the epistemic and ontological? Well, s- some of them, yeah, well, a lot of these approaches are not
3: necessarily motivated to deal with the hard problem. Mm, mm. A lot of these approaches are there to actually deal with consciousness in general, which are like mm, mm. Chalmers calls them the easy problems. Mm. Like, you know, maybe uh, our ability to think and so on and so forth. Right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, cognition and stuff like that. Now, when these ideas have been developed, then obviously these, th- this problem has emerged and they're trying to apply for example, a particular physicalist theory that already explains a lot about consciousness to this area, and that's why some of them say it's it's a debate we, we we'll never deal we we'll, be, we'll never be able to, to to solve a question we'll never be able to answer, but it's solving a lot of the other problems or the easier problems in consciousness, and you know it allows us to understand neuroscience and develop medicines for neurobiological disorders and understand more about behavior. So they are motivated by the kind of functional uh, aspects of these approaches that is making sense uh, of all the other aspects of consciousness. All right, fine. We have these, we have the hard problem that we can't deal with, but who cares kind of thing. Right. And especially because, you know, they already have, you know, the socialization, right. The socialization of naturalism, physicalism, that even if you know, there is a recalcitrant fact, there's a fact that resists physicalism, like inner subjective conscious experience, they're not gonna really um, give it too much attention, maybe, because they're solving loads of other problems, right? So I don't want people to think that these approaches emerge just to do with the hard problem. No, that's not the case. So, and again, just to remind people, because all this is very heavy, right? This is a broad kind of physicalist approach to the philosophy of the mind. Uh, sorry, uh, a physicalist approach in the philosophy of the mind that addresses consciousness. There are many empirical theories that have that adopt eliminative materialism, and we're not going to be addressing those because if we address the main metaphysic, if you like, all of these theories that depend on that. Um, do not be, do not really need to be addressed in the context of the hard problem. Okay, because so I don't want people to think that oh, aren't you aware of you know theory X and theory Y and you know this many I don't know megahertz or whatever they call it in the brain and there's another theory there's so many now right mm. that's unnecessary for our discussion because the physicalist approaches that we're talking about are the ones that these empirical theories depend upon. And if you could deal with them in the context of the hard problem, then you don't have to go into the nitty gritty scientific and theoretical stuff concerning the empirical theories. All right. So eliminative materialism. So the big kind of scholars, if you like, of eliminative materialism from the philosophy of mind perspective are the, of the church lens, right? I think they're husband and wife. And, and uh, by the way, from what I remember, when I was discussing this, when I was studying there were some academics that tr- that wanted to stop using language uh, like love. I'm in love. They wanted to say things like my area of the brain is, is uh, vibrating at this megahertz or whatever language that they yeah. use. It was really, really bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. It's really bizarre. bizarre. Anyway, so Eliminative Materialism basically says that, you know, we have ideas that are quite like folk psychology, right? And we've used these ideas and the language that we've used – and we've used it in a way to, to describe subjective consciousness because we don't have physicalist solutions. We don't have materialistic solutions. We don't have a, an understanding of, of, of the brain. And once science develops and it increases and it becomes more mature, if you like, um, that folk psychology, that language that we use, that framing is going to be made totally redundant. So, a limited Materialism argues that everything can be explained by physical processes. And, and this is very key It does not accept that phenomenal consciousness exists. There is no first person, right? There is no subjective consciousness. There is no subjective consciousness, yeah? There's no subjective conscious experience. This is just physical stuff happening, yeah? And they just basically claim that the brain is made up of neurons. It undergoes physical and chemical processes. Therefore, once we explain this, we will somehow explain consciousness. So for the eliminative materialist, inner subjective consciousness, conscious experience are just an illusion and therefore it denies the first person fact of phenomenal experience mm. simple as that right so that's an easy way of 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 addressing what eliminative materialism is now interestingly frank jackson and philip Petit, they maintain that this approach eliminative materialism which basically argues that look the history of science has shown that you know, once we know more about the physical stuff, more about the science, the kind of folk psychology, primitive framing of these experiences is going to disappear, right? They argue it doesn't logically follow, right? And the reason they say that is because they say that it's it's unreasonable to reject conclusions of a theory due to the potential discovery of another theory that may have greater explanatory scope. Because it could be the case that the claims of the weaker theory are still true, Right? And they give an example of the kinetic theory of gases. I'm gonna read, um, so this makes sense to you, right? So Frank Jackson and Philip Petit maintain that the materialist claim, which we just mentioned, that the history of science has shown that a physicalist language will replace our primitive folk psychology. Um, That claim itself doesn't logically follow. And they basically say that it could be the case that claims of a weaker theory are still true despite a scientifically better way of explaining the same phenomenon. And what Jackson Petit use is the kinetic theories of, of gases as an example. And basically, if you don't know, the kinetic theory of gases studies the microscopic behavior of molecules and the interactions which lead to macroscopic relationships. Yeah, Now, this theory uses statistical analysis to provide accurate results from macroscopic, macroscopic manifestations of microscopic phenomena. Now, Jackson Petit, what they postulate is that if a hypothetical superkinetic theory provided non-statistical deterministic calculations of the exact position, mass, velocity and size of every gas molecule, it would not provide a basis to reject the fact that gas, gases have temperature and pressure. The reason is that the superkinetic theory does not contain, and I'm quoting them, information that supports the relevant part of the old theory. And Jackson Petit summarized the argument in the following way. And yet, no reductive identifications of temperature and pressure with fundamental properties of the superkinetic theory are possible. Temperature, for instance, is not the mass, velocity, or position of any individual molecule. There'll be no isomorphism, even by the most most relaxed standards between gas laws framed in terms of temperature, pressure, and volume, and the laws framed in terms of mass, position, and velocity of molecules of the superkinetic theory. The basic texo- taxonomic principles of the two theories are very different. In conclusion, in, in light of this, eliminative materialism is not an adequate Explanation for the hard problem of consciousness. So, in summary, what Philip Petit and uh, Jackson are arguing here, they're basically saying that look, it doesn't the the motivation of the likes of Churchland and other limited materialists that say, look, history of science shows the more you know about the physical world, you're going to remove this folk language. Right now, he argues well that doesn't logically follow. And even in the philosophy of science, you'll understand this as well because I think Elliot Sober, who's a philosopher of science, he I think it was him who argued that um, old theories, uh, some of them are still workable, and they and they have they make great predictions. Yeah. Anyway, moving that aside, uh, the, the, so they're arguing that you can have you can have a better theory scientifically that explains the phenomena in question, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to reject the old theory. Because the new theory may not contain parts of the old theory yeah. in which that old theory explained certain aspects of that phenomena. Yeah. So it's not as simple as saying, oh, look, you know, we have this, you know, this form of uh, scientific narcissism. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The more you know about the science, the more we, we know about these realities and all this folk language and this framing is, is all false. Yeah it doesn't simply follow by virtue of the argument that they mentioned and they use the kinetic theory of gas as an
2: example. So is that clear? Yeah. I mean, I mean just to go back and, and really understand what eliminative materialists are really trying to say when they deny or, or subjective experiences uh, are, are like, so are, are, are they, okay. So uh, if, if I feel um so if I, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, if I feel a certain sensation, uh, drinking water or eating a certain fruit, um, are, are they just reducing that experience down to pure physical um, happenings in my body? Yes, that's it. What if I'm imagining things, or is that a different topic? Are we stepping into no? They,
3: they 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 may argue that it's just it's just illusory or it's just by way of the the language you framed that experience uh, in in within, within in the language of what they would call folk psychology. So for example, falling in love. I am mm. in love. I am feeling something and it's called love. Mm. They say, well, when science improves and neuroscience improves, we're just going to basically say that uh this area of my brain have these particular neurochemical firings. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Is that clear? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think Dan Dennett in 1990, he wrote the book or 1991, he wrote the book Consciousness Explained. And many argued that, well, actually, it was that it should have been called uh, Consciousness Explained Away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, look, let's just be honest yeah. I And because I'm in academia, I'm a PhD student, hopefully finishing at some point next year. And I realize this in academia, like sometimes when you're outside of the academy or even in it, if you be, have been infected with some kind of spiritual disease, you think they're objective and, you know, it's the academy. Yeah. We don't have any presuppositions or metaphysical, epistemological biases, complete nonsense, nonsense. Yeah, absolutely, As yeah. people do bakwas, yeah? Yeah. And that's why it's a caution to many of our scholars and preachers who go into academia, sometimes they, they, they enter into into that space and they adopt false epistemological and metaphysical assumptions which don't belong to the Islamic tradition. But they're thinking now they're adopting something that is, you know, good and, and you know, uh, Islamic and in actual fact, they don't question it enough. Um, anyway, this is side point. So the reason I'm saying this is because, you know, when you get into academia, people are motivated by non-intellectual stuff. That's why sometimes they adopt these these positions, yeah, and we just have to accept that. And this is in line with normal with modern cognitive science. Like we think we're just rational; we have an argument; we're justified. No, in actual fact, it's been shown quite clearly that well, the the reason, the motivation behind that have been has been psycho-emotive driving forces. Yeah, don't think you're this kind of like you know ivory tower, AI machine, you just type in the right algorithm, you get certain intellectual results. Well, human beings are not like that. Um, and that's why, you know, one would argue, like, if at one point we do a part two of this and we're going to panpsychism, like panpsychism could be like a good replacement, right? Mm-hmm. Consciousness is everywhere. Like there's a form of panpsychism that you have proto-consciousness, like electrons have a form of primary or proto-consciousness,
2: mm-hmm. Right.
3: Like an electron has a primary form of an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah I thought that's yeah. being crude. And people would say, oh, you're being crude as a straw man. But I'm trying to be deliberately funny. The point here is when you look into these things, it's like, hey, that sounds like a good replacement to me. And what's interesting, even in an academic book, uh, was published by Routledge, the academic actually cited and said, I can't talk about these things on the dinner table with other academics. When I talk about God, they just dismiss me emotionally. Do you see? yeah so i want people to realize i don't think just because it's academic peer-reviewed all that stuff it's the academy Absolutely,
2: absolutely.
3: it's going to preserve itself in some way It's has its own metaphysical and epistemological assumptions
2: right. so anyway. before, before moving on to the next slide if you could because uh you know i can mention that maybe some of our listeners probably heard a lot of heavy terminology there when you're giving the kinetic theory of gases um, um uh example if you were to summarize it in like two or three sentences in a very straightforward fashion without even having to provide the justification. But if you just explain the response in the most simplistic way as possible to eliminative materialism, how what would uh, you, say? you mean Frank uh, Jackson's and Petite's or
3: what is yeah yeah, yeah Frank Jackson's
2: and, Jack's and Petit's response. Because uh, you're okay. using so, their response. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So no without necessarily those... using their example, but if you were to summarize it in like one or two sentences. What's the gist of the point that they're making in their response? And like, a, a yeah.
3: So possible. to understand the gist of response, let's understand the gist of the motivation. Mm. So the gist of the motivation is, every time science progresses, which is not necessarily true, by the way, but let's just take it as as they're giving it to us. Mm-hmm. As science progresses and material sciences progresses, we're we're understanding reality. Mm. Okay. At the moment, we don't have enough data, experiments, information to understand reality mm-hmm. so what we're doing we're using language that sounds unscientific that's more in line with subjectivity mm-hmm. like love or mm-hmm. i'm hurt and stuff like that yeah yeah so that's the motivation well, it's kind of like
2: a gaps but, argument they're yes they're accusing us of yeah
3: sure yeah. and so jackson and petit are basically arguing well that doesn't actually necessarily follow mm-hmm. because it could be the case that you have more understanding of the reality, the physical reality, to explain it. But that uh, understanding of the physical reality may not necessarily deny your original take on it. Exactly. Right? That's what they're basically saying. Sure. And they give an example of a particular theory We yeah. you can have a new theory to explain um, the, the, the movement of gases,
2: for example. Without contradicting the final conclusion. Yeah, that
3: might give deterministic uh, answers, meaning we exactly know uh, exactly the movement and the position and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, and the old one was more probabilistic, was more statistical. Yeah. However, that new theory doesn't have information that the old theory has, which explains things like uh, and exactly so on and so forth. So why would you deny the old theory when it's still giving you knowledge, right? right. So they're basically saying it just doesn't logically follow the whole yeah. So doesn't exactly. yeah. Yeah, uh,
2: you know, uh, the, the, we might we might discover more in the future, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to change our theory or fill in all the gaps that need to be filled in uh, by... Sure, school. sure, sure. Okay. for sure. I think we got that clear. Okay. Cool.
3: Reductive materialism. <laughs> now, in fairness, when I was going through this, I got confused. <laughs> I was like... There's not much real difference here. Uh, and that's why we have to be very, very, very um, uh, specific in our wording to to make a distinction between eliminative materialism and reductive materialism. Yeah. Mm. So reductive materialism is basically, they say, look, there's a knowledge gap. There's a knowledge gap between the physical processes and subjective conscious experiences. So already they're saying, we're not denying the fact that you have inner subjective conscious experiences. Mm. We're not denying that you have Phenomenal consciousness We're not denying Qualia Which is In the language of neuroscience Essentially In a subjective conscious experience We're not denying these things But they're fundamentally physical In some way Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And at the moment We just have a gap We have a knowledge gap An epistemic gap Yeah Mm -hmm. And what they're saying is That gap is going to be Explained or closed With a physicalist Philosophy Yeah So So Reductive materialism, unlike eliminative materialism, accepts that subject- subjective consciousness exists, but it can be reduced to physical happenings in, in in our brain in some
2: way. Okay. If we keep uh, if we keep the semantics, uh, I mean, would you say that the difference between reductive and eliminative materialists is is only semantical? In the sense that, I mean, at the end of the day, both of them are saying that it's 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 going to be reduced to physical happenings. And one side is just calling it hallucinations or, you know, self-deception or whatever they want to call it. Another one saying, yeah, it's actual consciousness. Is it a semantical difference or do you think there is a real difference here? By by reductive materialists accepting subjective consciousness, uh, but still reducing it to physical happenings. Are they really saying anything, you know, essentially different from eliminative materialists? Um, ontologically, they're probably
3: not, mm, right? Because, not. Yeah. yeah, because it's still like material stuff; it's still physical yeah. stuff. Yeah? Okay.
2: Yeah. But
3: they would say that look, we're accepting that you're having these feelings. We're accepting that you're we're accepting that you have an their first-person fact of an inner subjective conscious state. We'll yeah. accept that. Yeah. But we're still, we're still, you know, adamant that it's it's still physical, uh-huh. yeah. in some way, and the whole point of this project of physicalism and neuroscience is trying to explain how it could still be physical. That's a different question. So the eliminative material says it's all physical. There is no inner subjective conscious uh, conscious experience. So there's nothing to think about now. So you just the more science you know, the more you're explaining. What they're saying is, no, you have inner subjective conscious experiences. You have this first person fact of um, this phenomenal consciousness, a subjective conscious states. We're accepting that. We're not denying it.
2: Yeah.
3: And what we're saying, there is a gap in how to even link it to the physical stuff, yeah. how to reduce it to the physical stuff. Yeah. There is a gap. And the whole point of our project, the philosophy of physicalism, in this context, reductive materialism and neuroscience is trying to close that gap in some way. And the more we know, we'll uncover amazing stuff. We don't know how, you know, what we're going to explore, but it's still physical in some way. But the whole project is to find out how we can close that gap. That's a different intellectual motivation. Mm-hmm. Okay. I had the same problem. I was like, well, is there really really a difference?
2: Yeah, because to me, if I speak to an eliminative materialist or a conscious uh, or a reductive materialist, they're both going to tell me, look, uh, what you call, what you sense is a feeling of love is actually nothing more than certain physical happenings uh, occurring in your body. Um, But the eliminative materialist, but the reductive materialist will be like, Sure, you could call it a feeling, call it love. Sure, call it love, but there is a physical explanation to it. Well, the limited will just be like, look, uh, you're just uh, deceiving yourself by thinking that you're actually really having this feeling called love because it, it's really nothing more, it can boil down to nothing more than physical happenings within your body. So it, I think they're both really essentially saying something else, but they're just articulating themselves differently. Or I think the reductive materialist doesn't want to... C- you know, he recognizes the intellectual, the high intellectual price tag of the eliminative materialist was coming across as denying things that are very intuitive to us, denying that love really exists. Denying no, because, that, yeah, yeah, I mean, for the limited materialist, they say, look,
3: it's, it's, this, it's this part of your brain and it's this yeah. set of neurons firing. Mm-hmm. The reductive materialist may uh, echo a more of a weak emergent Materialist, right? Emergent, uh, emergent, uh, emergent, uh, uh, weak, weak emergence. Yeah, they may say, well, it's a complex causal connections between different physical processes. We're not going to reduce it to one process, mm-hmm. but rather there's a bunch of physical stuff happening, and there's complex causal connections, and you have this new property that you're experiencing as an inner subjective conscious experience. Right. So they're saying well, we don't know how that's happening, but we'll find out eventually as science improves. So that's why when we talk about weak emergence, you see that it really assumes reductive materialism. Mm -hmm. Right. And you have also something called non-reductive materialism, which is essentially also, if you like, uh, emergence in some case, because you'd be like, well, it's still physical stuff, but we cannot reduce it to particular physical processes, because it is so complex that something else happens, right? Which in a way, non-reductive materialism is, is also emergence, but other things as well, but we don't have to get into that right now. Yeah. So what they're saying is, is, there's no way of reducing all of subjective conscious states to physical phenomena, and reductive materialism is motivated by the expectation that neuroscience will follow all the other sciences, right? And uh, what we would argue is, well, it's kind of impossible to know what it's like for a particular organism to experience a particular, particular inner subjective conscious experience just by observing neurons firing. So you're not solving the, the epistemic question with regards to the hard problem because relate this back to the hard problem. So what eliminative materialism does, they say there is no problem. There is a big difference saying there's no problem, mm-hmm. Right. Because you don't have inner subjective conscious states. And therefore, you don't have to ask the question, how do they arise from physical processes?" It's all physical. Mm -hmm. But they deny the hard problem. Reductive materialism accepts the hard problem. Mm -hmm. It can't answer it, though. Mm -hmm. It just can't answer it. Because remember, what we said in the beginning, I map out your brain, bro, all the neurochemical firings. How does it now follow from that correlation? Mm -hmm. From that neurochemical firing and correlating it to your linguistic utterances of a particular inner subjective kind of state how does it follow that we now know what it's like for you to have a hot chocolate on a sunday with your favorite pink slippers yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. you don't have pink slippers do you no i don't
3: okay. <laughs> <laughs> you get, you get the point. so um so so it's not answering the first yeah. question and it's not even answering the second question because fundamentally you want to reduce them to physical processes? Well, physical processes are blind and cold. They have no intentionality. They're not about or of anything. And a feature of consciousness is that it's it's aware, it's of something, right? So I'm looking at the door, right? The door. My thinking processes are of and about something other than the process itself. Physical processes do not have those features, so reductive materialism doesn't answer the hard problem of consciousness. And Professor Antti Ravoncio, he makes this point. He says, still, it seems clear that to talk about firings, activations and deactivations in different brain areas or oscillatory synchrony in assemblies, is not the same at all, uh, at, at all the same thing as talking about feelings of pain, cessations of color, passionate emotions and inner thoughts, and never will be. What is being left out is first and foremost the subjective aspect of conscious mental events. And remember, I echo this again this is not just epistemology, it's about ontology as well. More remember, the problem of the heart, the hard problem is also about well, how do in the subjective conscious experiences arise from seemingly non conscious, cold, non intentional physical processes? So it's not just about being able to understand what it's like for someone to have an inner subjective conscious experience just by observing neurochemical firings or happenings, but it's also an ontological problem. What's the source and nature of these experiences? Because remember, the reductive materialist accepts it, accepts that we have inner subjective conscious experience. Well, how do they arise from seemingly blind cold, just like the stone? Can the stone feel the flutterings of a bunch of butterflies? Is cold, blind has no meaning no intentionality it's not of or about something else it's not aware of itself physical processes are not of or about anything other than themselves <laughs> so how how can you have it's like you know let's be very honest it's like a very intrinsic problem here you could rub the stone forever there's no genie coming out or there's no butterflies coming out right so this is very very important and You know, and this shows the kind of ontological distinctions that we need to make, metaphysical distinctions, because consciousness is something very different intuitively, and physical stuff is something very different. What the reductive materialist is basically saying, no, the more you know about the physical stuff, the more you know about consciousness, but they're very different. Mm You will never be able to know, even just metaphysically, how? Because physical processes are blind, cold, non-intentional. They're not over about anything else And that's why I like saying They're basically psychological like fallacy They're saying The more you'll know about the table The more you'll know about the moon mm, mm, mm. But the table and the moon Are two distinct things Ah who cares mm. The more you know about the table my friend You'll know about the moon Right It's like saying The more you know about a woman Is the more you know about a man Oh Lord you respect The two different beings As Allah says right The maid is unlike the female <laughs> Do you know what I mean You feminists <laughs> Bunch of feminists, right? I, get,
2: look, look different. Oh, yeah. the, th- this lecture is definitely wins the record for most digressions on blogging theology. <laughs>
3: yeah, sorry, bro. It's, it's actually motivating me. It's, it's part of, it's part of the, the, you know, how do you call it? The coping. It's my coping mechanism. Like, yeah, yes. But you get yeah. the point. So the reductive materialism, so let's, let's summarize. In limited materialism, there is no questions of the hard problem, They're not, it's all physical stuff. Yeah. There is no inner subjective conscious experience. His experience is exactly the same as yours because it's going to be the same physical stuff happening. And you don't have this inner subjective conscious experience to try and explain with regards to its origins and how it, how it emerges from seemingly uh, cold blind physical processes, because it's just physical process. The reductive materialist accepts the hard problem. Yes. There's a knowledge gap. Yes. We have inner subjective conscious states, we need to try and explain them, but you can explain them in the future when we improve the sciences and neuroscience. But we're saying, well, hold on a second, even if we were to improve all the the neuroscience, for example, hypothetically, we know everything about your brain. We map out all the new chemical firings, it doesn't follow that we now know what it's like for you to have that particular inner subjective conscious experience. Also, it doesn't deal with the ontological question that we raised in the beginning. Well, how does this inner subjective conscious experience arise from seemingly cold, blind, physical processes? How? Because physical processes are, they don't have intentionality. They're not of or about anything else other than themselves. Even that you can't even say because what what does that mean? They're of themselves. They're just physical process, blind, non-intentional. And therefore, for me, it's like the reductive materialist is basically saying, yes, we accept that these things are metaphysically distinct in some way, maybe. Um, But the more you know about science and the brain, the more you know about this other thing called Subjective consciousness. Well, that's a equivalent of saying the more you know about the table is the more you know you, you can, you, the more you're going to know about the moon. Simply doesn't follow. Is that clear? Yeah. Good. Functionalism. So, functionalism, which I think one would argue, and I need to maybe address the literature here, and the viewers can double check this. Functionalism is the kind of go to. Physicalist approach to understand consciousness, yeah, Mm. because it mirrors like computers, Mm. like what happens on the computer, right? And they like to show that the brain is like the computer. Although they're moving away from that, by the way, they think this is this is not a good starting point. Mm. But I don't think that's 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 the they need to catch on to this, you know, new way of being. Now we can't keep on comparing the human mind to a computer. But, nevertheless, functionism, what basically it says is that, look, consciousness, the way we can frame consciousness, understand consciousness, is by way of roles or functions. Yeah. And by way of roles and functions emerging from relations with an organism or a system, just like a computer, right? So, what they basically argue is that a function is a relation between inputs, mental states, and outputs. Okay. So, it's a relation. Between an input, in this context, my something from my five senses, the mental state, which is a phenomenal state in a subjective conscious experience, for example, it could be, and outputs, a behavior, for example. So I provided this example. If I see my bus arriving, which is the input through my senses, right? I can see it, I can hear it. I experience the mental state of worrying that I might be late due to the possibility of missing my bus, which is a mental state. So what's the output? I run towards uh, the bus stop, right? Now, so so in summary, what they're saying is functionism is just a relation between inputs, mental states, and outputs. However, that doesn't equal, or you cannot now know what it's like to be in a particular mental state or why they arise from physical, functional processes, yeah? So, for example, you can understand when someone sees a dog running towards them, which is the input, they're going to be experiencing fear, which is the mental state, then they'll run for safety. But understanding those relations, input, mental states and outputs, doesn't give you no knowledge of what it's like for that particular person to be in fear when they see a dog. Yeah.
2: So the epistemic problem is still not tackled here.
3: Yes. Yes. And not only that, you have the ontological problem as well. Well, yeah. how does that mental state even exist in the first place? How does it arise as a result of those relations? Mm. Right, because functionalism is a physicalist project; it still believes it's part of, you know, the physical apparatus that we have.
2: Right. I mean, and, and I mean, I think what reinforces this point is that, you know, you, you may have the same input. But uh, a a completely different mental state uh, across the board. I mean, a a, a lot of people may not be scared about if they see a dangerous dog running towards them because, you know, they're used to dealing with with dangerous dogs. Right. Or if someone's carrying a weapon. Yeah, sure. I mean, but easily. So, I mean, if if this was really a purely physical response to a particular stimulus, um, then you would expect some sort of consistency across the board. But if we're talking about some kind of mental state. Uh... Yeah,
3: probably not, because what you're describing is a different mental state now. A different, uh-huh. because uh, w- because it's slightly different, because one would argue from a functionist point of view that they have a different input now. Mm-hmm. That they have the input of the dog running, but mm-hmm. they have a, another input which is based on the experience that that dog is toothless. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah?
3: Yeah, yeah, or that do- dog is all bark and no bite. Yeah, mm, mm, that's mm. an input. Now that forms the input, which will change their mental state. Mm.
2: Well, let's assume they have the same mental state of fear. So, so they're factoring knowledge and experience of an individual into the input, right? Like, uh... I would assume so. Yeah, I okay. would definitely okay. Assume, okay. assume so. This it's one. not just a physical stimuli. Just, okay, fine, that's fine. yeah, yeah,
3: of course. So what I would say here is that, given the fact that uh, they accept mental states in other, in other, in this case, in a subjective conscious states as well like fear and feelings and so on and so forth and they say it's a relation between inputs mental states and outputs it doesn't functionalism doesn't give us an understanding of what it's like for a particular person to have that particular mental state and number two it doesn't explain the ontological question how do they have this in this mental state this inner subjective conscious experience um uh, uh as a result of physical processes because functionalism is essentially a physicalist project right So again, you have the same problem as reductive materialism. This is clear. Yeah. And Ned Block, he wrote a famous article like uh, gunning down um, functionalism. Although functionalism has been used to understand consciousness. And as I said, we're not gunning down or refuting these approaches in dealing with the the project of consciousness. Yeah. The easy problems. This is specific to the hard problem. Okay. Right. Now we could go into weak emerg- emergent materialism. So we have weak emergent emerg- we have emergent materialism in general, but then we could split it to weak emergent materialism and strong emergent materialism. Now, weak emergent materialism says, look, we will eventually understand subjective conscious experience when we understand the complex processes that are involved. So what they would say is this, there's so much complexity So many physical things happening, physical processes. There are causal relations between these things. There's too much to unpack, right? And what they would argue is that consciousness and inner subjective conscious experience is an emergent property. It emerges from that physicalist chaos, that physical processes, all of these things have inner, you know, they're all entangled in a way in a core with complex causal relations and you have this emergent property and this emergent property although we can understand it came from this physical mess if you like this complexity but it cannot be reduced to to an individual physical process and what is in each individual physical process right cannot explain that emergent property so let me explain again Emergent materialism, especially the weak form, basically says there's so much complex physical complexity going on. We have physical processes and they have um, uh, complex causal relations. And then as a result of that, you'll have an emergent property. And that property, in this case, in a subjective conscious experience, can be explained because of this complexity and this com- complex uh, causal relations between all of these physical processes but each of these physical processes, if you were to just, you know, individualize them, if you like, you couldn't find the new the the property that has emerged in each of
2: those. Uh huh. So yeah. So it's it's combined. Uh, uh, has, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of magic in, in a way. In a way okay. you could. So what, as... okay, wouldn't so, yeah. not the but, reductive I... materialist claim the same thing when he says that it's exactly? Yes, 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 yeah.
3: That's why Ravanshu argues in this sense it assumes reductive materialism. Uh huh. Okay right so you may argue well emergent materialism is non-reductive in some way but it really it, it does assume reductive materialism because the more you'll know right yeah. i mean maybe you can't call it reductive materialism but look let's just ignore that for a moment the point is yeah. emergent material assumes reductive materialism yeah and as Ascoli and Sam Sonovich argue, that emergence is not well-defined and there is no logical necessary link between a complex brain and the rise of phenomenal experiences. Yeah. So in, in a way, maybe it's, it's a polite way of them saying this sounds like magic. You have complex causal uh, relations and you have this new property and this property can't be found in the individual processes themselves. This sounds a bit like magic to me. Yeah, again,
2: it's not dealing with an ontological problem because, you know, uh, it, 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 I mean... Obviously, it can't come from a single physical process, and you keep adding more physical processes. That's not going to help you, uh, you know. Uh, explain. Well, they the, argue. The no, no. Yeah, they argue they
3: they they may be able to solve the ontological problem because they're saying there is something about the complexity. There is something about all of these physical processes, with mm-hmm. complex causal relations and connections, if you like. Mm-hmm. There's something about that That will produce this new property This emergent property That you can't find in the individual processes So they are trying to explain it physically Right But we would argue Hold on a second If you have um, One physical process That is code, blind and unconscious And doesn't have intentionality And you add another physical process That's code, blind, non-conscious And doesn't have any intentionality No awareness Mm -hmm. And you add another one that's similar then you're still gonna get the same thing.
2: Yeah.
3: Because the principle is, you know, you can't like if I don't have five pounds, I can't give you five pounds, right? Yeah. I don't yeah. have it. So something cannot arise from another thing if it doesn't contain it or doesn't have the potential to, yeah. to uh to produce it. Yeah. Now what we would say is just logically, and that's why Askodian and Samsonovich argued this very main point it's emergence is not very well defined and there's no logical necessary link between a complex brain and the rise of inner subjective conscious experience mm,
2: mm,
3: mm. yeah it's nice but it sounds like magic to me Exactly. Yeah. oh is this in the hocus pocus complexity yeah. and and then now they may say yeah but we'll improve the sciences and then once we find out then we're done but well, it's emergence,
1: well
3: it's not emergence anymore It would be reductive materialism it would be like okay well, now all you've done is you reduce it to physical stuff. Well, we've got the same point. We've got the same problem from the hard problem perspective. How do we know what it's like for Basam to have a hot chocolate on a Sunday morning? And why does he have those inner subjective conscious experiences arising from that so-called complexity? Because that complexity itself doesn't con- in, in, in the individual parts of that complexity doesn't contain that property. And when you add something that is non-conscious, something that is non-conscious plus something that is non-conscious you're still going to get something that's non-conscious. Yeah. yeah. But they do try and argue by using water as an example, which we're going to talk about. Mm. But even if they were to solve, for example, um, the ontological problem of saying it's the complexity, right? And these complex causal relations would actually produce this emergent property and this emergent property cannot be
2: found in the individual process themselves. Yeah, they might accuse you of the fallacy of composition, right? Yeah. So they, they might say, oh, you're assuming that that the, that, the, that the attribute of the whole equals its parts, Hamza. So you're committing a fallacy. But uh, I think as you're pointing out here that um, in this particular case, it's not the fallacy of composition because at the end of the day, you're still um, adding, you know, uh, non-intentionality plus non-intentionality plus non-intentionality. It's still going to, there's no way yeah, adding the them up. It's going to give you yeah. intentionality.
3: Um, yeah. The fallacy of composition, you have to apply that, that logical fallacy. Exactly, it's not a universal. For example, uh, the logical fallacy can be understood like this: so, if you have a uh, Persian rug, a Persian rug is very heavy, right? So, so each thread of the Persian rug is very light. Exactly. So, yeah, you can apply the logical fallacy because we can't now say the Persian rug is made of many light um, uh, threads. Therefore, the Persian uh, rug is light. It just doesn't follow. However, it's not fallacious to say that each brick is hard. Yeah. And the, therefore, wall, the brick wall is hard. Yeah. Therefore, the brick wall is hard. You're not going to say now it's soft, right? Exactly. Because it's about, um, uh, you, you have to understand it in, in its application with regards to quality. So yeah. the point here is, um, uh, what we're saying is that this is not uh, the fallacy of composition. Yeah. Because there is no phenomenal consciousness in the individual processes that all come that have all of these complexities Mm -hmm. and the causal relations between these things are still physical for you anyway
2: exactly Mm
3: -hmm. so what you're saying is so you can't apply the logical fallacy here Mm -hmm. because it's equivalent of saying that each brick is hard Mm -hmm. and the brick wall now is soft yeah you've got a new property exactly Mm -hmm. yeah that arises from the complexity of the bricks combining together yeah. Although you can't find softness in each individual brick. Now, exactly. with all due respect, yeah. you're talking yeah. nonsense, my friend, right? Yeah. It's balderdash. Do you see the point, yeah? Clear. Clear. Good. Clear. I'm, I'm glad that
2: you... Uh, I'm glad I brought up that point and that you addressed it. Well, uh, this is your to... job,
3: my friend. Your job is to no intellectually squeeze me, to try and tap me out, my friend. Exactly. So, strong emergent materialism. I like this one. This one's, this one's funny, yeah? So... This form argues that subjective consciousness is a natural phenomenon. It's physical. However, any physicalist theory that attempts to address this reality is beyond the capacity of the human intellect. So it argues that we can get a new phenomenon X from Y without knowing how X emerges from Y. Now, with all due respect, this doesn't explain the hard problem of consciousness. And it just admits it cannot be explained. And Ravoncio makes a very interesting point. He basically says that the strong emergent materialist will never be able to address subjective consciousness, and even if we were to be given the correct theory, it would be equal of what hamsters could make of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species if a copy was placed in their cage. It's beyond our cognitive apparatus, right? It's just too complex. I don't think anyone takes this
2: seriously, really. To be honest
3: any questions on this one
2: okay so yeah they, they just uh, they just say it's too complex to explain and therefore we're never gonna even it's just the, uh, the lazy the lazy way out right it's just the lazy escape hatch. Pretty much. Well, well, yeah. no, maybe
3: it's their way of just trying to say physicalism and look, physicalism as a broad project is explaining consciousness in other ways very well. But we've got this hard problem and we don't really want to deny what makes us human. We don't want to deny this first person fact. But one way of trying to explain the whole thing is saying, look, this is way beyond us. It mm. is reduced to physical phenomena, but it's so complex that even if we were to have a, a theory mm. We would not understand it. It would be like, you know, putting uh, the dictionary in a rat's cage, except uh, expecting
2: the rats to understand what's in the dictionary. Yeah, but it's still blind faith. I mean, it's still blind faith. I mean, uh, in a way. Yeah. Right? Uh, mean, uh, they're, just, they're just so... Con- I, I mean, sure, they could come and say, hey, I have an independent set of arguments for why I think physicalism is true. Um, and and therefore, um, this is not going to shake, shake my foundation. But what would you say? Then Hamza, if he were to say that, right? If he were to say... Well, well,
3: I would say, okay, they are motivated. Let's just be honest. They are motivated to hold on to the physicalist project by virtue of, you know, what's uh, the success, for sure. But, But they shouldn't be motivated to deny another alternative metaphysical explanation that also accepts the physical stuff. That's my problem. So we don't necessarily, and we're going to explain this at the end, we can have a thing that you could call it integrated dualism, where you have a theistic explanation for the metaphysical gap that they can't address, like the ontological gap. Also the epistemic gap uh, to explain it through our own metaphysic, which is theism. And at the same time, keep on doing your neuro- neurobiological studies, no problem. The, and that is... Uh, a far better coherent metaphysic because this this is metaphysics basically
2: yeah. these physicalists approach like they're metaphys- just trying to brush aside this argument as uh, you know a consciousness of the gaps uh, sort of argument but obviously you're saying much more you're you're saying look i'm not saying that we merely do not know um you know what what explains and we're, we're at, you're asserting uh, you know uh, and you're making the positive case that it's impossible that there is a physicalist uh, explanation uh, yes that, you, you know, are you know. are so it's not a consciousness of the gaps argument you are ass- making yes stuck, you're yes. asserting with confidence making a positive claim there will never be a purely physicalist uh, theory that could ever they
3: fail the, the metaphysical explanation fails to address the hard problem the two questions of the hard problem even if they may address the one the first question they can't address the second mm. so therefore it's inadequate as a metaphysical explanation mm this as simple as that. And what's interesting, so from that perspective, they're metaphysically castrated. <laughs> Sorry for using those terms. But that's it. They're just, and what we're saying is, our metaphysical explanation is coherent, and it accepts all of the neurobiological stuff. No problem. Right? But that we could unpack that in a few moments. So, they say, look, no, no, no. Emergent materialists say, "Look, and this is the famous H two example. Look, we we know that you can have an emergent property that doesn't that cannot be found in the individual physical components or physical processes. So, therefore, emergent materialism is coherent. And they use water as an example. So, the H two example, you have uh, two parts." Uh, uh hydrogen one part oxygen and you then it it's water it's this shiny uh, uh transparent liquid but the properties of shiny and transparent cannot be found in the individual um processes or the individual components like oxygen and hydrogen but yet you have this property that emerges as a result of this complexity now one would argue is there a complexity here but that's a different question but for argument's sake let's say there is a complexity going on there are two parts hydrogen one part oxygen and they and they and they physically relate and combine and connect in some way and you have this emergent property called water well that is water but the property is shiny liquid and you can't find shiny liquid in the individual components here or the individual parts. Is that clear? Yeah. So that's their way of saying, "Look, emergent materialism makes sense." However, Raymond Tallis, he's actually an atheist. He's a humanist. He wrote the book. Uh, Sapana, it's, it's in the, it's in the notes. It's called. I think he mentions the ape in it. What does he say? Where's the reference? Ah, oh, it's a really good book. I've oh, always called now. I don't have to go all the way to the to the, what do you call it? Uh Bibliography? Yeah, no, there's no point. I, I could show at the end, but the name is really good, but I forgot the name. Uh
2: Okay. Uh, is it what Neuroscience cannot tell us about, our, about About ourselves? Or aping <laughs> mankind?
3: Aping mankind. That's a beautiful title, yeah. Neuromania, aping
2: Darwinitis. Mankind. Yes. And the misrepresentation of humanity.
3: Perfect. Thank you. So he basically says, and let's unpack what he says. Let's read it first. He says... And he's challenging the emergent materialist, right? Because for him, I think because he's a humanist, he humanism generally speaking is a little bit different from like kind of this uh, hard atheism, yeah, or this kind of uh, you know this this approach to the human that just reduces them to physical stuff. Because there's something special about human beings, yeah. And you know, he it, that's why he I think he's motivated from a humanistic point of view. He's not motivated from a theistic because from what I understand, he's an atheist. So he says the most obvious trouble with the view that neuroactivity on the one hand and experiences on the other are the same thing is that they should appear like one another but nothing could be further from the truth as it is nerve impulses seem required to have two sets of appearances at the same time that are profoundly different from one another an appearance of electro electrochemical activity and an appearance of experience an appearance of experience of something other than themselves both shiny water and H2O molecules need to be revealed as one or the other. They co- correspond to diff- two different modes of observation. The two aspects of water are two appearances, two modes of experiencing it, and this hardly applies to neural activity as electroactivity and experience. So he's already making this kind of almost uh, metaphysical ontological distinction that, look, neural activity and Phenomenal experience, inner subjective conscious experience, it's not the same as H2O and shiny water. Because H2O and shiny water are just two modes of experiencing of experience, uh, experiencing the same thing. But neural activity and inner subjective conscious states, they're not the same thing. That's what he's basically arguing. So uh, he argues against this H2O emergent materialist argument by saying, Well, uh, the two aspects of water are just two appearances, two modes of experiencing, and it's experiencing essentially the same physical thing. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to neuroactivity and inner subjective conscious states, they're not the same thing Mm -hmm. because this is going totally against our metaphysical intuitions here, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we've been saying from the part of the ontological question. How can it be that inner conscious states arise from seemingly non-physical, non-conscious, non-aware, non-intentional physical processes? So that's his argument against emergent materialism. But there's another good argument as well. And I got this argument from my friend. Subhanallah, my memory, man, I'm getting old. I forgot his name, but his his Twitter handle was Neuromaliki. I forgot his name. Neuromaliki. Yeah, he's a really good brother, mashallah Allah bless him. Um... And uh, I saw him write this on Twitter, and I just slightly—it's re- probably exactly what he wrote. I slightly reworded it because it was such a really good way of dealing with the problem. And he says, "Look, the whole thing begs the question. It's also important to know that every emergent property of water can be explained by the physical properties of the atoms and molecules interacting in a particular way. Now, if we try to explain water's properties and behavior, we refer to kinetic theory, kinetic theory of interactions. However," Trying to explain consciousness, in this case, in a subjective conscious experience, via emergence, begs the question, because it pushes it forward. And, you know, we could ask, how does material phenomena, at a particular level of complexity, give rise to this consciousness? Simply saying it just does, is not an explanation. So we're saying that, well, even with the water scenario, we have, when we understand um, the, the, the emergent property of water, the shiny liquid, can be explained by the physical properties of the atoms and molecules interacting in the, way, in the same way, in, in a particular way. But that's not the case with consciousness and and uh, the the physical processes. Yes. Yeah,
2: all, all they're trying to do here is show how properties could emerge if two things, you know, combine together. And no one's denying that. No one's saying that new properties could emerge if two parts... Uh, you know, get together into a whole, right? Rather, what we're saying is that the nature of the property of consciousness cannot possibly arise from the mere physical parts uh, conjoining together. Yes, that's actually a more simple way of putting it. Mm
3: -hmm. So uh, the emergent materialists, the reason they cite the water example, because saying, look, you can get a new property arising from uh, complex physical interactions, in this case, shiny water from Uh, two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom interacting in a particular way. Uh, But the thing is, they've misunderstood the whole framing of the argument because, as Talis says, well, shiny water and the H2O molecules interacting in a particular way, um, in a complex way, if you want to even call it that, there's just two modes of experiencing the same thing. But what he's saying, uh, in a subjective conscious experience and neurobiological and physical processes they're not the same thing that's the whole point mm-hmm. so um it's a misplaced kind of argument yeah. from the
2: emergent this material. analogy yeah
3: yeah but however there's another way of looking it's, it's also begging the question because what we're saying is this emergent property of water can be explained by the physical properties of the atoms and molecules interacting in a particular way what emergent materialism says with regards to the hard problem is that, um, so it can be explained in a physical way. They're saying that you have a new property and that new property can be explained by the complex interaction of these physical processes. However, it could, it could probably only do that if that property, that new property was actually physical because shiny water is physical, right? And, What we would say is this directly goes against our metaphysical metaphysical intuitions because inner subjective conscious experience is very fundamentally different from uh, neurochemical firings or any complex physical processes because we don't even have a theory or an explanation that could relate back to those physical processes to allow us to explain this new property in any shape or form. So if you just refer to emergent materialism in this way, You're just begging the question and we still have to ask, well, how does material phenomena at a particular level give rise to this thing that is seemingly immaterial or this thing that is what we call as inner subjective conscious experience, Mm. simply saying, Oh, it just does without any explanation that can refer back to the physical properties or the physical stuff in question. That's trying to, that there is an explanation for this emergent property is not an explanation at all. It's like, it's just, like saying magic that's that's the point i know that was a complex set of words here
2: yeah,
3: yeah. um but uh from that so going back to uh, emergent materialism yes you may have a new property seemingly a new property that emerges from a complex uh, from complexity physical complexity and physical processes with complex causal connections fine you may have that but that is not an explanation for the hard problem of consciousness Because again, you'd have to refer to reductive materialism because that means once we know, because the emergent materialist says, when we know about this complexity and we know about this science, then we'll get an explanation. Okay. But then all you're doing is referring back to, you're just assuming reductive materialism to be true, which doesn't answer any of the questions of the hard problem. Because if we were to know everything about the physical brain, it doesn't follow, I know what it's like for Bassem to have a hot chocolate on a Sunday. And it doesn't explain how that inner subjective conscious state arises from seemingly non-conscious physical processes. I think that's probably the best way of putting it. Right. makes sense? Right. Good. Let's move on. Right. And this opens the door to now artificial intelligence. Can artificial intelligence be fully conscious? Is artificial intelligence an example of emergence? Now, all we're doing really, we're just expanding what we've just said with regards to the water, but in a little bit more of a complicated way. And I think it's important because AI, in five years, lots of people are losing their jobs. I'm not saying there'll be A financial crisis And people are going to be poor Because human beings Have always adapted When technology comes And new jobs have emerged But I'm saying If you're a coder Get another job Become a business analyst Or something Because that might still be needed Yeah Um, But with regards to coding I don't think uh, Maybe three years It's game over Yeah Mm. Sorry to say Sorry to say As Mohammed Hijab says He says that a lot Sorry to say (laughs) Sorry to say Right So AI A case for emergent materialism so let's remember, the emergent materialists may argue that our ability to have inner subjective conscious experience can be explained once we understand the complex physical processes that underpin such phenomena. Yeah, And they may, re- they may respond to the hard problem by rendering analogous, analogous to the ability of computer programs to have rational insights, which they may argue is a feature of consciousness. Computer programs can think. They're more smarter than humans. Look at chat. Was it chat GPT? Was it called? Yeah. Um, it's just like, whoa, it can give you a, a 10 line piece of poetry uh, with uh, rhetorical devices and seconds. Yeah. Uh, you know, what about playing a very advanced computer program, playing chess with a very advanced computer program? It's all game over now. It's very intelligent. Right. So they would say, look, this is an example of where we're going. This is an example and, and computers are fundamentally based on physical things and once we you know understand these physical processes better we improve on them and we' we're, we're, we're able to have um, the emergent property of consciousness, right just like now computer programs have rational insights, if you like or they have you know this type of uh, intelligence then which is a feature of consciousness then it follows the more we develop in our technology with the more we develop in ai the more we develop in, in 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 this science um we're gonna we're gonna uh have uh the ai machines are going to be fully conscious and if they could be fully conscious then it explains that you know physical stuff is all you need you don't need a god right so before we get into this story we have to first start to define ai right let's start building the picture about ai deep learning and neural networks and stuff like this so john mccarthy stanford university he says it is the science of engineering it's the science and engineering of making intelligent machines especially intelligent computer programs It is related to the similar task of using computers to understand human intelligence But AI does not have to confine itself to methods that are biologically observable. So for John McCarthy, it's a science and engineering of making intelligent machines, particularly intelligent computer programs. So what does IBM Cloud Education say? Basically, They say in its simplest form, artificial intelligence is a field or domain of knowledge, if you like, which combines computer science and robust data sets to enable problem solving. It encompasses subfields of machine learning and deep learning, which are frequently mentioned in conjunction with artificial intelligence. These disciplines are comprised of AI algorithms which seek to create expert systems, which make predictions or classifications based on input data. So you have data, you can have data sets. And you have an algorithm that tries to make sense of the, the, the data sets, right? And, you know, it's really advanced now where to the point where you may not even need data sets, you just have loads of data. And this advanced AI algorithm can actually try and make sense of that in some way. And, you know, just a very quick point on machine learning and deep learning, IBM says that machine learning is a branch of artificial intelligence, a computer science, which focuses on the use of data and algorithms to imitate the way humans learn, gradually improving its accuracy. So you have an algorithm, and you have data sets, and this algorithm actually tries to imitate human learning to make sense of the data set. And deep learning is comprised of neural networks and the reason it's deep is deep learning refers to the neural network itself because it comprises of more than three layers which would be inclusive of the inputs and the output and this is what they say is considered a deep learning algorithm so this is like a uh, image of deep learning you have more than three layers and you have these neural networks and neural networks, which are also known as artificial neural networks or simulated neural networks are a subset of machine learning that are at the heart of deep learning algorithms. Obviously the name and structure are inspired by the human brain mimicking the way biological neurons signal to one another. Artificial neural networks are comprised of a node layers, containing an input, uh, one or more hidden layers and an output. But essentially it's a, uh, we're moving away from all of this complex language, really, it's just zeros and ones. Yeah, so really, any computer system is just just has two digits, one and a zero, and this is called this is called the bin- binary, and our computers use this all the time. And the digital information or data is made up of something called bits. A bit is, a, is short for binary digit, meaning each bit is really just a number, either a, zero, a one or a zero. Now, what's very interesting, ones and zeros as on and off switches, the electronic versions of on and off switches. That's all we're talking about. So, you know, as you combine all of of these zeros and ones, and, you know, you have all of this, you know, uh, AI complexity that we just mentioned, but you just reduce fundamentally to electronic on and off switches, right? Zeros and ones, guys, electronic on and off switches. It's like the atoms of a program. So as it says here, just like atoms made up of everything around us in the real world, everything in the digital world can be broken down into binary. Even though we can't see them, it's all a bunch of ones and zeros. Essentially, electronic on and off switches. That's it. I know, you see, and that's why framing is very important, because when you start to get into this field, and I'm not, by the way, I am not claiming to be an AI expert. I'm not. I hate coding. I don't even know how to code, right? And I don't even like maths, right? But uh I'm 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 explaining this from a philosophical conceptual point of view. All of this stuff and the framing that you see when you listen to things like Elon Musk or uh, you go on you know Twitter debates and you see TED Talks and it talks about AI and machine learning and consciousness and emergence, fundamentally, with all due respect, all of that is just reduced to zeros and ones, which are electronic on and off switches. All right. So yeah, you'll have an algorithm with data sets um some of those data sets uh, relate to each other we have more complex uh, you, you have a very advanced algorithm that you may not even need a data sets that relate to each other it's just all data that's unrelated and it will make sense of it uh then you have that deep learning and so on and so forth and it gets very fascinating and complicated for sure but at the end of the day you reduce all of that to electronic on and off switches right so when we're talking about can AI become conscious, we have to make a distinction like Professor John Sewell makes a distinction between strong AI and weak AI. So strong AI is be- basically artificial intelligence machines or computer programs are going to be fully conscious, meaning they, could, they have a stream of consciousness. They have inner subjective conscious experience. They can attach meaning to symbols. Uh, they can do advanced thinking, rational insights, and so on and so forth. Okay. As John Sowell says, the properly programmed computer really is a mind in the sense that computers, given the right programs, can literally uh, said to understand, be, be literally said to have to understand and have cognitive states. Yeah. So computer programs. Um, really have understanding and they have cognition like a human mind. They have awareness and subjective conscious experience. Now, weak AI is, well, computers are never going to have consciousness from the point of view that they could attach meaning to symbols, from the point of view that they have inner subjective conscious states, from the point of view that have fundamental consciousness. All they do is they simulate cognition. They simulate thought and understanding. I'm of the view, and hopefully when we do with this part of the presentation, that computer programs and AI machines would always be weak AI. Now, weak AI doesn't mean that they're not smart, by the way. They'll be smarter than humans with regards to simulating human cognition. They'll be able to think faster, for sure, and solve complex mathematical problems faster than the human being, for sure. But they won't be strong from the point of view that they would literally be like a mind with inner conscious states with the ability to attach meaning to symbols and so on and so forth. So there, there, that distinction needs to be made. And before we get into why that's the case, let's just argue, you know, if AI does become fully conscious, hypothetically, strong AI, yeah. AI becomes strong AI, AI, not just weak AI. uh, They would argue that, well, that would support the view that human consciousness is based on physical, functional processes and interactions. In other words, phenomenal consciousness in a subjective conscious states is going to be reduced to physical processes. So this would imply that human consciousness could have emerged without any external anything external to the natural world. In other words, there is no need for a soul or divine intervention. But I would still argue, even if that's the case, it doesn't necessarily mean that religion or theism is undermined. Because it could be argued that God uses physical functional processes to bring about consciousness. However, it just does not require something non-physical to ensure the emergence of consciousness. But fundamentally, it may do because we know all of contingent reality, which is physical reality, requires, derives existence from a necessary being that is not contingent and therefore it's not physical. So fundamentally, there'll be a non-physical Uh, entity that brought all of contingency into existence Um, but with regards to um, maybe you know there was a creation of a closed system and the physical processes just uh, just worked themselves and you had a human being and it became conscious and therefore if an AI machine becomes conscious too it doesn't necessarily deny theism because it could be the case that God used uh, created this closed system with physical functional processes and if they connect in a particular complex where you'd have consciousness even in ai machines but even in saying that so, uh, some entity had to create this closed system or some entity had to create physical contingent reality in the first place and that's where you have the argument from contingency you need a necessary being that is not contingent other words is not physical so even in saying that you still needed something to kickstart the whole process anyway so i'm only mentioning that as a caveat to to show that if for some reason which i think would never ever happen anyway but if some reason that oh a human being a, a ai machine robot becomes conscious in a The strong AI sense, meaning it has phenomenal conscious experiences in a subject of conscious experiences, it doesn't deny the theistic uh, theistic worldview.
2: Yeah, because we would just insist that uh, you know uh, that if strong AI does does materialize, we we will insist that someone with a consciousness could have only made that possible, right? And obviously, human beings are creating these AI devices and they have- Absolutely.
3: It's a protraction it. of our own uh, consciousness. Exactly. So
2: the, so the only thing that yeah. would mean is that it is, uh, okay, so it is possible for someone with consciousness to create another entity with uh, consciousness uh, through physicalistic means. That, that's the only thing that it would mean. That would, the only, that would be the extent to what it entails. Yeah, it um, for her. And then, uh, and like, as you just said right now, uh, we will say that, well, yeah. Uh, if anything, this just reinforces the fact that uh, a being with a consciousness, it, you know, is the is the origin or the originating cause of all of us who have, who have consciousness.
3: Uh, uh, now, that would challenge Islamic jurisprudence. <laughs> like, you know, could you marry an AI machine? Uh, by the way, I have a prediction, right? Mark this down. Today is, what, the 20, 20th of July, yeah.
2: uh,
3: 2023. So my dad's birthday tomorrow, right? 20th July, or was he born on the 22nd? Anyway,
2: uh, point got out this of, on tape. Make sure he doesn't watch it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in five to ten years' time, if you still have, you know, the dominant secular worldview, neoliberal worldview, this transhumanism and postmodernism, you know, infecting our ideological and social space, you're gonna have human beings marrying. Robots. All right. Five to ten years. And you'd have this kind of uh, secular liberal imam doing a nikah between a human being and a robot. All right. You think, think it's uh, a joke? Uh, but... we,
2: we we may possibly have AI imams. So you know, <laughs> exactly. There, there, there'll be no need, there'll be no need for that, right? And uh and we'll make sure we get can bring other AIs that'll refute them. So uh but we'll think uh, a <laughs> We okay. <laughs> Brilliant. So let's move on. Right. So as you said, look,
3: AI is just an extension of us. AI is not an independent system with the ability to engage in real cognition. AI was designed, developed, made by human beings that can attach meaning to symbols. Mm-hmm. Therefore, what these computers are, they're just a protraction of our ability to engage in real cognition. In this case, attach meaning to symbols. And we're going to explain what that really means in a few moments. But William Hasker makes a really, really great point. He says, Look, computers function as they do because they have been constructed by human beings endowed with rational insight. Yeah. A computer, in other words, is merely an extension of the rationality of its designers and users. Mm-hmm. It is no more an independent source of rational thought than a television set is an independent source of news and entertainment. Right. And I think that's a really powerful um uh just just way of just uh, of arguing this 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 point but you can't get more complicated and what i would argue is that ai they does not have intentionality meaning ai cannot engage in real cognition only simulate it human beings are intelligent from the point of view that we have streams of uh consciousness and thinking right um and our reason has intentionality. And what's intentionality, we mentioned this before, is that it is, above, it is about or of something else, right? Now, physical things, uh, coding, a physical process is not of or about something else, right? And this sense of intentionality is associated with meaning. Now, conversely, as we said, computer programs are not characterized as having meaning. What they just do is they just manipulate symbols, but they can't not really attach meaning to the symbols. So, for the system, for the computer system, for the program, one would argue that the symbols that they have, these syntactical arrangements, are not of or about something. All computers can see, in inverted commas, are just the symbols they're manipulating, irrespective of what we may think the symbols are of or about. So, let me expand on this, right? And this gives us the kind of, uh, this opens the door to the distinction between syntax and semantics. And this is an argument from Professor John Sell, right? And he developed this argument in the 80s, and I think he developed it on a plane on the way to, to somewhere. So to understand the difference between syntax and semantics, symbols and meaning, consider language itself. So you have two sentences here. I love my family and rabo din igoyeniamu. I love my family, which is in Greek. One's in English, one's in Greek. Now, the two sentences have the same semantics, meaning it has the same meaning. I love my family. So it refers to the semantics, to the meaning. But the syntax is different. In other words, the symbols, the letters, they are not the same. So if I gave you all of the letters of the Greek language, bro, and I told you to put the alpha there, after the Alpha, put the Gamma, after the Gamma, put the Alpha, Alpha the, uh, after the Alpha, put the B, after the B, put the Omega, and have a space, then after have to put then put the Itta, then put the the Ni, then after to put a space, then put the Omicro, then, then put the Yoda, then put the Kappa, then put the Omicro, then put the Gamma, then put the this, that, and the other. If I told you how to do it, and you knew how to do it, And you knew how to arrange those letters, those symbols in the correct way, would it give rise to the meaning?
2: Yeah, Uh, at the end, but if I write it that way, right? No, you don't, do you know Greek? I don't, no. Yeah, so if
3: I gave you these letters and I said, put these letters, you don't know. No, No. I still wouldn't be able to process I still can't process it. Exactly. So a really good, powerful argument from John Sell can uh, be articulated and developed. So Johnson in 1989, he basically argues computer programs are syntactical, meaning based on syntax. Uh, In other words, symbolic, just like these letters, arrangement of letters. Minds have semantics. In other words, meaning. Syntax by itself, as the example that I just gave you with the Greek letters, is neither sufficient nor constitutive for semantics. Therefore, computer programs by themselves are not minds. Yeah. And he came out with one of the best thought experiments that I've heard in philosophy. Okay? It's called the Chinese Room Thought Experiment. And I'm going to read it out to you. And yes, this is the experiment in verbatim from John Seo himself. You ready for this? Yeah. Are you ready? Right. So... Imagine that you are locked in a room, and in this room are several baskets full of Chinese symbols. Imagine that you, like me, do not understand a word of Chinese, but you are given a rule book in English for manipulating the Chinese symbols. The rules specify the manipulation of symbols purely formally in terms of their syntax, not their semantics. So the rule rule might say, take a squiggle squiggle out of basket number one and put it next to a squiggle squiggle sign from basket number two. Now suppose that some other Chinese symbols are passed into the room and that you are given further rules for passing back Chinese symbols out of the room. Mm -hmm. Suppose that unknown to you, the symbols passed into the room are called questions by the people outside of the room and the symbols you pass out of the room are called answers to questions suppose furthermore that the programmers are so good at designing the programs and that you are so good at manipulating the symbols that very soon your answers are indistinguishable from those of native chinese of a native chinese speaker there you are locked in your room shuffling your chinese symbols and passing out chinese symbols in response to incoming chinese symbols now the point of the story is simply this by virtue of implementing a formal computer program from the point of view of an outside observer Mm. you behave exactly as if you understood chinese but Mm. all the same you do not understand a word of chinese Mm. Mm. and that's why john so argues Having the symbols by themselves, just having the syntax, just like if I give you all the letters and in English, I give you a rule book on how to put all the Greek letters in the right order with the right spaces, it's not sufficient to have the meaning, the semantics. Mm -hmm. Merely manipulating symbols is not enough to guarantee knowledge of what they mean.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Now, you obviously in philosophy, have responses. So you have the systems reply. So an objector might say, hold on a second. Although the computer program does not know the meaning, the whole system does. And so he he coined this objection as the system's reply. But here's the question. Why is it that the program does not know the meaning? The answer is because there is no way of assigning the meaning to the symbols. And since the computer program cannot assign meaning to the symbols, how can the computer system which relies on the program understand the meaning? You cannot produce understanding just by having the right Program. And what So does, he just makes an extension of the Chinese room full experiment to show that the system as a whole doesn't have the meaning. And he says, Imagine everything was just in your brain. So he says in 1990, Imagine that I memorize the contents of the basket and the rule book. And I do all the calculations in my head. You can even imagine that I work out in the open. There is nothing in the system, in the brain in this case, that is not in me. And since I don't I understand Chinese, Neither does the system. So the whole Chinese room could just be in your head. You could have memorized the rule book in English. You could have the baskets with all the squiggles, squiggles. And someone could give you certain questions. And then you just do all the uh, unpacking of the rule book, find out, look at all the squiggles that's in your brain at the moment, and then produce an answer. All you're doing is still manipulating symbols. There is no way of you attaching meaning to the symbols, although the system is all in your brain. So you can't say now the system understands um, the meaning. There's another more complicated argument from Loris Colton, and he says this is like almost like a logical fallacy. He says this is the denial of the antecedent. And he says that actually Professor So commits this fallacy, and, he's, and the reason he says that is because we are given no evidence that there is only one way to produce intentionality, meaning having meaning, attaching meaning to symbols. And he claims that Searle is assuming that only brains have the processes to manipulate and understand symbols, in other words, intentionality, and computers do not. So Carlton presents the fallacy in the following way. To say certain brain process equivalents produce intentionality and X does not have these equivalents. Therefore, X does not have intentionality is to commit the formal fallacy denial of the antecedent however there is a response del Jacket maintains that cell does not commit the fallacy if an interpretation of cell's argument is if x is intrinsically intentional then x has certain brain process equivalence. so it's not really a fallacy from that perspective now even when we get into that into the complexities del jaquette believes that cell's argument is actually concession concession to functionalism Remember, inputs, mental mental states, and outputs. And Jaquette says that functionists maintain that there is nothing special about protoplasm so that any properly organized matter instantiating the right input-output program duplicates the intentionality of the mind. Now, again, we've already discussed how this won't even uh, deal with the hard problem of consciousness, because inputs, motor states, and outputs do not address the first question or the sec- second question of the hard problem of consciousness, which we just discussed a few, sound, feels like hours ago now, yeah? Uh-huh. So Cell also uh, seems to admit that machines could have the ability to, chi- to understand Chinese, However, he states, I do see very strong arguments for saying that we could not give such a thing to a machine where the operation of the machine is defined solely in terms of computational processes over formally defined elements. In other words, arrangements of uh, symbols. Hmm. Now, here's my argument. Well, if computers cannot attach meaning to symbols, then what kind of conscious machine is so referring to? If one were to possibly a robot, something that self rejects, it would still present insurmountable problems. The robot or machine would have to be able to attach meaning to symbols. But that would require something other than these aforementioned computer processes over formally defined elements. Does such a machine exist? The answer is no. Could they exist? If they could, they probably would have to be able to attach meaning to symbols, which we know a program can't do. So from this perspective, theism or religion is not undermined. And interestingly, according to Rocco Gennaro and many other, he says many philosophers agree with those view that robots could not have phenomenal consciousness. In other words, inner subjective conscious states. And some philosophers argue that to build a conscious robot, qualitative experience must be present. Something which they're very pessimistic about, and obviously we've discussed why they should be pessimistic about it.
2: But, but what if AI... someone what, what if someone argues that look, I mean, with, with AI now. You're asking all these open-ended questions to AI, and clearly it understands the meaning of what you're asking it. And uh, given just given the way it is responding to you, and, and I guess when it comes to the examples, because because you know when you're quoting, uh, uh, is it Sir, Sir How would I pronounce his name, Sarah Sarah Lyle? Uh, uh, you so, know. So. So, Professor sir, Johnson. Uh, yeah sir so I mean he's speaking you know maybe 30 years ago and maybe he just did not um you know fathom uh, that you know what kind of, how how AI uh you know is working today but I think you know a lot of people who are using chat PPT and whatnot I mean they are just get under the given impression that you know we are dealing with an intelligence that clearly does understand what I'm saying to it. Uh, I mean, well, there, 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 there are even some apologist brothers who are having back and forth debates with AI, you know, trying to convince ah, yeah. it about the strength of uh, you know certain arguments and, and whatnot. Uh, so that aside, it, it, I guess it will be very difficult for people to intuitively uh, swallow the idea that AI is not able to attach meaning symbols given how we're interacting with AI today. Well, it's exactly the same thing as the Chinese room experiment.
3: And By the way, John Searle gave relatively recent lectures anyway, so mm. this, this, I he I, I still I think he's of the view that his thought experiment hasn't been undermined mm. because all you're doing is repackaging that thought experiment.
2: Mm.
3: Like I'm in the Chinese room, I have the rule book in English, and uh, I I don't know what the Chinese symbols mean, but I'm reading the rule book and I'm just manipulating the Chinese symbols. And to the outside audience, when they give me questions, they think I know Chinese. Same thing. I'm typing in chat GPT, A, B, C, D, whatever, and it's giving me some really profound answers. Oh my god, I'm I, you know, this is an amazing system. It has consciousness, it has understanding. No, we've just given you a similar thought experiment. Because what is chat GPT? It's 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 essentially. S- uh, syntactic arrangements Fundamentally reduced to electronic on on off switches Zeros and ones It's just an arrangement of the complex arrangement Of those on and off switches Simple as that It doesn't have the ability to attach meaning to those symbols hmm. Just like I didn't have the ability to attach meaning To the Chinese symbols themselves I was just following a rule book The computer program but you guys thought outside of the Chinese room by giving me questions and I've learned the and I'm going through the rule book uh, thoroughly and I'm giving you certain answers, answers in the Chinese language, although I don't know, know what they mean, but because by virtue of following the rule book, in other words, the p- computer program, I now know you may now you think this guy knows how to sophisticate uh, uh, answer sophisticated Chinese questions in the Chinese language. he must know Chinese. It's the same. it's exactly the same thing. Uh, yeah, it's just a different framing of the Chinese Rome experiment. And uh-huh. You still have the same problem. Uh-huh. So, Rocco Gennaro says to explain consciousness is to explain how subjective internal appearance of information can arise in the brain. And so, the, to create a conscious robot would be to create subjective internal appearance of information inside the robot, no matter how advanced would likely not make the robot conscious since the phenomenal internal appearances must be present as well. That was his position. But yeah, so your counter argument is really good because it's a modern argument with chat GPT, GPT, I think it's called, yeah? Yeah. Or other AI um, uh, things online. It's the same thing. It's just uh, uh, the Chinese experiment in a modern context. So... Moving on now, will neuroscience solve the hard problem of consciousness? Now, this is even easier now because we've done the hard work, guys. Yes. The hard work of the physicalist approaches, AI, emergent materialism, reductive materialism, blah, 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 blah. We've done the hard work, okay? So um, now it's easier. But before we get into the easy argument or rebuttal to neuroscience in trying to explain the hard problem of consciousness, we need to understand there is a challenge for neurobiologists, right? Now, in the language of neuroscience, the hard problem of consciousness refers to qualia. The term qualia is a mental state with a subjective quality to it, right? And as you know, the hard problem has sparked many heated debates on the nature of consciousness. For example, Daniel Bohr he states that the hard problem remains un- unresolved. He says there are a lot of problems, there are a lot of hard problems in the world, but only one gets to call itself the hard problem. That is the problem of consciousness. How 1300 grams of or so of nerve cells conjures up the seamless kaleidoscope of sensations, thoughts, memories, and emotions that occupy every waking moment. The hard problem res- remains unresolved. And Christoph uh, uh, Koch, I think that's how you pronounce his name admits that the problem remains elusive and the subject of heated and interminable debates now we need to understand, you know, to deal with this question, can neuroscience solve the hard problem, is to know that neuroscience is not philosophy-free. It's not metaphysically free. In actual fact, there is no postulation, no idea, no argument. That is philosophy-free. And we know this in the literature as well. For example, Manzotti and Moderato, they highlight that neuroscientists are not metaphysically innocent and that the empirical data needs to be interpreted from the perspective of some premise. Rex Wilson, for example, he also posits that neuroscience's explanation of consciousness is based on an assumption that phenomenal experience can be reduced to neurobiology. Ian Gold and Adina Roskies explain neuroscience is based on physicalist guiding assumptions which are taken from which are taken from other fields. And the potential quen- questions it raises are all on the table and all have philosophical implications. In other words, neuroscience is not metaphysically free. It's not philosophically free, and it has physicalist assumptions. Which ones? The ones that we mentioned. Mm. Either you could reduce it back to uh, uh, an approach of eliminative materialism or reductive materialism or emergent materialism or functionalism. The point is, neuroscientific experiments have some form of physicalist assumption. Now, here are some general points. As you know, neuroscience is mainly a study of correlations, but these correlations cannot tell us what it's like for a particular person to be in a a given state of consciousness, as we already discussed. Remember, the person using and describing the words, uh, describing the experience by using words such as sweet or hot and bitter is fine. And you could correlate them to some neurochemical firings, but now you can't now assume what it's like for that person to experience sweet and hot and bitter with regards to that particular experience because meaning is is a is a vehicle so words are vehicles to meaning and meaning in this context is a representation of that subjectivity we don't know what that subjectivity is just by virtue of just listening to those linguistic utterances so we cannot explain the internal subjective conscious experience with the third person language of science now here's the smackdown argument to expose neuromania right because you get that it's neuromania. Even the atheist Raymond Tallis says, <laughs> "Someone comes, someone uh, come, you know, on Google Science or some magazine. They found this frequency in the brain, and it's the source of subjective experience. Just get the paper and read it, and you'll find the philosophical assumption of a particular physicalist, uh, a metaphysical assumption. And by virtue of that, you know it doesn't address the hard problem. Yeah. And here's a smackdown argument. Number one, neuroscience assumes." Uh, there's a spelling here, sorry. Neuroscience assumes a physicalism or physicalist uh, metaphysic. Yeah. Yeah. Number two, physicalism cannot address the problems of phenomenal consciousness or the hard problem of consciousness. Number three, therefore neuroscience cannot address the problem of phenomenal consciousness or the hard problem of consciousness. Because no matter what neurobiological neurobiolo- studies that you have, the the neuroscience itself and neurobiology is going to be based on a physicalist assumption. So you can't say, ah, this neurobiological investigation or this neurobiological study has solved the hard problem because you are assuming a physicalist ontology. You're f- assuming a physicalist metaphysic. You're assuming a physicalist approach to, to, to the mind. And those physical you Run into approaches, the same problem. Yeah, you yeah, just raises the same problem. It just raises the same problem. And we would say, well, it doesn't close that epistemic gap and or it doesn't explain how inner subjective conscious experience arise from seemingly non-conscious called blind physical processes. Now, interestingly, David Papineau, I think in my view, ends the game. Now, he presents a really, really interesting argument when you look at all the neurobiological studies and all the neurobiological firings. That's why, as my friend called it, pixelated phonology. Phren- and I want you to understand this argument. It's a little bit hard to understand, but once you understand it, you, you get it, right?
0: Mm.
3: So, and this is a summary of his argument, a neurochemical event E is identical with the conscious experience P. Okay?
2: Mm
3: -hmm. E cannot be absent when P is testified to be present. Mm -hmm. E cannot be present when P is testified to be absent. Mm -hmm. E must be present to be necessary for P. Uh for the conscious experience. So that neurochemical event E must be present to be necessary for P. Uh However, E, the neurochemical event is sometimes absent when P, the conscious experience, is Uh testified to be present. Uh And the neurochemical event E is sometimes present when Uh P, the conscious experience, is testified to be absent. Therefore, E the neurochemical event e is not necessary for p the 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 conscious experience mm-hmm. so what he is basically saying is that uh, physicalism assumes or neurobiological studies assume that the neurochemical event e is identical with the conscious experience p uh-huh. okay so therefore the neurochemical event e uh cannot be absent yeah. when that conscious experience is testified to be present Mm -hmm. right and also the neurochemical event e cannot be present when the conscious experience p is testified to be absent Mm -hmm. so e the neurochemical event e must be present to be necessary for p the conscious experience Mm -hmm. however when you look at the neurobiological studies E is sometimes absent when P is testified to be present. Well, the connection is not necessary. When P is testified to be absent, therefore E, the neurochemical event E, is not necessary for P. Khalas, game over. Mas bye-bye. Janaza, bye-bye. So basically,
2: basically David is saying that um, uh, so far, no one's been able to demonstrate a consistent... uh, you know, uh, con- you know, concurrent connection between, uh, you know, a neurochemical event and a conscious experience 100% of the time. He says that, you know, that yeah. there's there's always so evidence show, that, that the connection yeah, is to not, show, not necessary. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So to show that E, for E to be necessary for P, the neurobiological studies haven't shown that. However, it may have changed in the past couple of years. Even in saying that, even if this argument is now false, it doesn't affect everything that we just said because remember even if you were to show that the electrochemical firings in your brain in your brain are always present when p is present and all the neurochemical firings in your brain are always absent when p is absent in a particular conscious right. experience mm-hmm. it still doesn't answer the hard problem of consciousness because that neurochemical firing or that mapping, if you like, doesn't give rise to knowledge of what it's like for you to have that con- inner subjective conscious experience. It doesn't answer the question of how on earth do we have an inner subjective conscious experience arising from seemingly code-blind, uh, non-conscious electrochemical activity. And just to build on
2: the last point that you said. I mean, this
3: uh, is just an additional icing on the cake. We don't need this argument, but it's a powerful one.
2: Uh, exactly. I, I mean, I mean, but at the same time, I mean, just to build on the last point that you said, that um, uh, perhaps in this case, there may be a conflation between correlation and causation, whereby, okay, we may grant that, for the sake of argument, that a certain neurochemical event E is always present when a certain conscious experience P takes place. However, that may not, necess- that still does not answer uh, the ontological uh, question because you, you would have to demonstrate that e is the cause of p and not merely yeah
3: very p, good
2: right? so there's a conciliation between correlation and causation. Right. So, uh, so even if it is always identical with it uh, that still really doesn't answer uh the ontological uh, question
3: exactly. it doesn't even answer the the epistemic question either because even if you were to know uh the neurochemical firings it doesn't give us Mm-hmm. An answer to what it's like for you to have that particular conscious experience. Mm-hmm. So both questions of the hard problem not even answered. But this was an interesting additional argument as well, just to show yeah. that neuroscience really pixelated phenomenology when it comes to the hard problem of consciousness. Now many people, you know, you know, they follow um, Andrew Huberman. He does some amazing stuff concerning neuroscience. That's all fantastic stuff. Neuroscience has a very important role and we respect the science. We love the science. Yeah.
2: We're not (laughs) anti-scientific.
3: Yes. That's the point we're trying to make. We're not, we're just saying it can't address these metaphysical questions. We recognize its limits. Yes. We can't address this epistemic question or this, or this ontological question. That is basically the two key questions from the hard problem of consciousness. So finally we're here now. Mm. Why does theism best explain the hard problem of consciousness? Well, Remember what the hard problem of consciousness basically says. It's arguing about, well, it's raising the question of what is the nature of subjective conscious experience? What is it like for a particular organism? What is it like for me to have a hot chocolate on a Sunday morning with my favorite slippers? The other, and that's an epistemic question. And the other question it raises is, well, why and how do, does this inner subjective conscious experience of me having a hot chocolate on a Sunday morning with my favorite slippers, how does that arise? From seemingly cold non-conscious non-intentional uh, uh, blind uh, physical processes or neurobiological processes which really another question to that is what is the ultimate source of these experiences so given the fact that the physicalist approaches to the mind and obviously by extension neuroscience cannot really address the hard problem of consciousness then i would argue that theism is has is the is a better metaphysical explanation because look at what many atheists would argue I'm not saying all of them, but many. For example, philosophical naturalists, metaphysical naturalists, or physicalists. They say everything can be explained physically in some way, and it denies the non-physical, and it accepts the physical. And that itself has basically uh, rendered neurobiological studies, rendered uh, even the empirical studies, theories, rendered the metaphysical approaches to the mind, the physicalist metaphysical approaches that we just discussed. It renders them... um, inadequate in trying to solve the hard problem of consciousness but if you have a metaphysical thesis which we believe there is a physical and a non-physical dimension and that we accept the physical and the non-physical then this now starts to open the door for us to have a greater metaphysic that explains reality for example we would argue that it explains the nature of subjective conscious experience. As Professor, the Christian professor JP Monod argues, our knowledge of the natural world will give us positive reasons for believe for not believing that irreducible consciousness would appear in it. E.g., the geometrical rearrangement of inert physical entities into different spatial structures hardly seems sufficient to explain the appearance of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And since theism accepts the non-physical, then it basically uh, gives us the metaphysical scope to explain the nature of conscious experience. Because if we're forcing it always to reduce it somehow, explain it somehow in a physicalist way, we end up not answering the question. We end up uh, giving answers that are counterintuitive and don't even satisfy our intellectual thirst. It doesn't quench our intellectual thirst because it can't answer the two questions main questions from the hard problem of consciousness because they have that metaphysical restriction. Atheism doesn't. It also explains the sources of these experiences, right? Now, if physical processes in consciousness or inner subjective conscious states are are distinct in some way, it follows that consciousness could not have emerged from them. So we need a more coherent explanation for the existence of subjective conscious experience. And we would say is that God, Allah created consciousness. And given the fact that physical processes are blind, cold, so there's a spinning mistake here again, physical processes are blind, cold, and random, or blind, cold, and unconscious. They're not characterized uh, uh, with any intentionality. They're not aware of themselves, aware of anything about uh, outside of themselves. Uh, given the fact that this is the nature of, of physical processes, and given the fact that consciousness in our context inner subjective conscious experiences are characterized by meaning, intentionality, awareness, subjectivity, then physical processes cannot give rise to consciousness. So we would argue a theistic approach answers this metaphysical question, which is since the universe was created by an ever living, alive, all aware being, it follows that we're given consciousness with the capacity to be aware of our inner subjective conscious states. We know this from the Quran. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala In chapter 2 verse 255 two, 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 five, his says Allah There is no deity except Him The ever living Also in Quran chapter 67 verse 14 Allah says And He is the all subtle The all aware So it makes sense that An all aware ever living being created human beings With the ability to have life The ability to be aware The ability to be conscious Physicalism doesn't give us That explanation at all Because physicalism or physical processes do not have those features, if you like, or those aspects. They are blind. They have no intentionality. They're not aware of. Uh, they don't have. They're not aware of themselves aware of anything outside of themselves. They're not of or about something else. They're cold and unconscious. So again, there's a metaphysical restriction here. They're in, in metaphysically incapacitated, right? Physicalism, but theism doesn't have that problem, and that's why it's like magic in reality, you know this atheistic, physicalistic approach, they just just want to believe in magic. Because what they're basically saying is this. From non-conscious, cold, and blind physical processes, emerge consciousness. Remember the stone. Will the stone fill the flutterings of the butterfly's wings? No. But theism is coherent. As Professor Charles Taliaferro says... But in a theistic view of consciousness, there is no parlor trick or discrete miraculous act of God behind the emergence of consciousness. Consciousness emerges from the physical cosmos through an abiding comprehensive will of God, the irada of Allah. And we would say the kudra of Allah as well, the will and power of Allah. And there is a world of physical and non-physical objects, properties and relations. And we would say this is more of a coherent uh, metaphysic is more of a current metaphysical explanation. Atheistic explanation for the measure of consciousness, consciousness has greater explanatory power than competing physicalist explanations. Now, this is important. note: we are not denying the usefulness of biological explanations to unearth neurochemical uh, neurocorrelations correlations. We're not denying neuroscience. We love neuroscience. Yeah, We love Andrew Huberman's work. Yeah, we love this stuff. Keep on doing it. Solve problems. Absolutely. But we would say neuroscience can be conductive just as rigorously and fruitfully in a theistic context. Mm. Now, what is being advocated is adding theism as a philosophical basis to fully explain what non-theistic explanations cannot and will never not, as we discussed by virtue of exposing the inadequacy of the physicalist approaches to the mind. Now, in this sense, you may argue this is a form of dualism and it has been termed as integrated dualism. And Professor Charles Teleferro explains it really well. He says, I do not see why the brain sciences cannot continue with its study of psychophysical interaction. Moreover, one may be a dualist and treat consciousness and brain states, the person and body, as functional units without supposing there is only one kind of thing metaphysically that is in play. Mind body, or as I prefer to call it, integrative dualism, is the thesis in metaphysics. Integrated dualism is not a scientific hypothesis that competes with any scientific claims. And therefore, from that perspective, um, we're totally uh, uh, intellectually justified to adopt this metaphysical explanation that's more coherent. Now, before we get into the final point, it's important to note and be very clear about this. It's important to note that sometimes you have these cliches from the atheist or the physicalist oh, if you damage the brain, it's going to affect your consciousness. This is not an argument against what we've just said because we're saying, yes, the consciousness and the brain need each other, but they're distinct. And a good analogy is to, is to have a car and a driver, hmm. the car, if it's working and functional, which is the brain and consciousness, which is the driver. If it's, if if it's working and functional hmm. things, things are normal. But if the car breaks down and con- the consciousness is is functional, then there's no movement and vice versa. If the car is working and you know the the lights are on but no no one's at home and consciousness there's no consciousness the car's not going to move either. So from that perspective we know the driver and the car are distinct but they need each other. But one could even argue if you want to open this can of worms uh, near-death experiences if you look at the uh, testimonies and you look at the studies recently it is really challenging and materialistic paradigm. Guy's dead, looking dead, eyes are closed, hmm. brain stopped or heart. Cl- clinically dead. Yeah, clinically dead, and the guy knows what's happening. Yeah. Few floors, you know, conversations, colors of jumpers, this that, and the other. Uh, this is like, whoa, okay, we're starting to understand now that yeah, in 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 normal functional life, it's like the brain and the driver. And they both need each other. They're both distinct because the driver can walk out of the car. <laughs> That's what happens in near death experiences, right? Uh, you know, especially when they. No, no I'm not talking about the, the dreams that they have of, of the hereafter or meeting entities. I'm talking about out of body experiences. Sorry, when it's yeah. ne- when it's connected to near death experiences, the driver could just walk out of the car. So that when the car is damaged, the driver could walk out and go to the park and start counting how many sheep there are, just like in the. In the near-death experiences, when people have out-of-body experiences and they start yeah.
2: seeing things that it was physically impossible to know, right? We 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 have an but that episode. is another day another time. Yeah, we we have an excellent episode on blogging theology dedicated to this. Uh, it's called yes. Re- "Religious Experiences in a Secular Age" with Professor Dale C. Allison of Princeton. we encourage our our our, our, our listeners to check out that episode on blogging Please. theology. Please. Uh, where 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 our guest uh, you know provide several examples of these. So my beloved brother,
3: let's end with one of the most important points. Because look, my dear brothers and sisters who are watching this, and if you've had the sabr, the the ability, capacity, the 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 zeal, the passion, the drive, the energy, the comprehension, the intellectual fortitude, the physical fortitude to continue in this marathon of intellectual discussion, and you've come to this point, then no. And internalize and affirm that this is the most important point from an Islamic paradigm perspective. Because you know we can't distinct the intellectual from uh, the unicity of Allah subhanahu wa taala. All the intellectual maneuverings that we do, everything that we postulate and assert, has to be linked to the unicity of Allah subhanahu wa taala. The fact that Allah is worthy of worship, worthy of adoration, worthy of praise, extensive praise, and ultimate gratitude. Worthy of obedience, of positive fear, of being of submitting to him, of being humbled before him And also directing and singling, singling out all of our internal and external acts of worship to him alone And when we discuss these things, always linking back to Tawheed, always linking back to Allah the, the, the main question that Allah answers in the Quran, which is, why is Allah worthy of worship? And why does consciousness lead to God being worthy of worship? And this is a very simple point that we want to raise Think about your conscious moments, right? There is something priceless that we receive at every moment of our existence that we don't earn, we don't own, and we don't deserve. Yet it's freely given to us. And we know it's priceless because we're talking about every conscious moment. Brothers and sisters, if I said to you, you had 10 minutes left to live, you had 10 minutes left of conscious moments, but in order to have another 10 days of conscious moments You have to give me all of your wealth You will give me all of your wealth and more And this shows how priceless this is If I said to you I'm going to give you 10 million pounds today And in the morning when you wake up how would you feel? Rather if I give you 10 million pounds you would be delighted But if I said to you I will give you the 10 million pounds But tomorrow morning you can't wake up Would you take the 10 million pounds? No. So when you wake up in the morning, you should feel as if you've had more than 10 million pounds. But that's a different issue. The point is, it shows that every conscious moment is priceless. So who receive a priceless conscious moment that we don't necessarily earn, own or deserve? We can't even create a fly. Can't even repay the gift of life. We even said that 10 million pounds is nothing compared to um, uh, waking up in the morning. What about waking up many mornings? It's priceless. We can never repay Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's a priceless gift that we don't earn, own or deserve. And it's given to us freely. If that's the case, how should we feel and to whom? If someone gave you a priceless gift you don't earn, own or deserve at every moment of your existence, you'd be eternally grateful, ultimately grateful. Likewise, you know, to be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because and because and gratitude, the ultimate gratitude Is only due to Allah As Allah says in Umm Kitab, Surah Al-Fatiha Which is the summary of the whole of the Quran Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen All perfect praise and gratitude belong to the Lord of everything that exists And gratitude is the key to worship It's a form of worship And that gratitude is expressed by acts of worship And we're always indebted from that perspective And so we need to be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Also, we need to praise Allah, which is also a form of worship. Because remember, Surah Al-Fatiha, Um Kitab is a summary of the Qur'an. And not only gratitude is the key to worship, but praise as well. Alhamdulillah. We are praising, hamd. We're praising Allah and thanking Allah. Allah is worthy of extensive praise. Why? By virtue of who he is. How do you know who he is? For his names and attributes. A great manifestation of his names and attributes is the fact that we live in a physical cosmos and we have this miracle that we're experiencing, which is conscious moments. What does that say about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That he is the perfect creator, that he is Allahu Akbar. That's what we say. We have the ability to have rational insight. We have the ability to have consciousness, stream of consciousness, to feel. We feel love, we feel pain, we feel emotions. We have these inner uh, conscious experiences that are like miraculous. This whole universe is like one dead stone, but you have human beings that emerge with this amazing consciousness. Look at this, this is a miracle that we're experiencing. Oh, you want a sign, the sign is you. You are the sign, you want miracles? You are a living miracle. And we don't even know. Right? It reminds me reminds of the poetry of Iqbal when he said, for the disbeliever, he is lost in the cosmos. But for the believer, the cosmos is lost in him, right? And so we should praise Allah by virtue of understanding this reality. So Allah is worthy of extensive praise and he's worthy of ultimate gratitude just by virtue of us having uh, conscious moments, priceless conscious moments that we don't earn, own, or deserve. And this is very, very important for us to understand. And there's much more, many more reasons why Allah is worthy of worship. But the reason I want to mention the praise aspect, because Allah is worthy of extensive praise, worthy of worship, because praise is a form of worship, by virtue of who he is. And we know he's even being the all aware. Him, him being Al-Khaliq, the creator, Al-Khalaq, the perpetually creating, right? He is worthy of extensive praise by virtue of who he is, and we understand that by just reflecting within ourselves. And in themselves, do they not see, as Allah says in the Quran, we have this consciousness that cannot come from dead physical processes, who did that? Allah. What does that say about Allah? It says that He is the most perfect Creator. He He's worthy of extensive praise. If we can praise the brain of a scientist, we can praise the skill of a football player. We can praise the eloquence of a poet. We can praise the athleticism of an athlete. We could praise the fighting skill of a wrestler, of an MMA fighter, and we could praise the design of an architect, and we could praise. The builder for the building and we can praise all of these things. Then what about praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who's able to bring conscious life into existence through this cold physical cosmos, apparently cold physical cosmos. Whose names and attributes are to the highest degree possible without any deficiency and without any flaw. If we could praise some deficient, contingent scientist, some deficient, contingent athlete who's not perfect, we all have flaws. We can praise some deficient and contingent poet because of the eloquence. And we have something within us and we're propelled propelled and compelled to praise them by virtue of the contingent, limited attributes. What about praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whose names and attributes are to the highest degree possible? Allahu Akbar. This is why we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Because of who he is as well So conscious moments can make us realize that this conscious moment That we need to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Don't be stuck in all of these intellectualisms You know I have gone into academia relatively late in my life And I do have uh, I don't know if axe to grind is the right word to say Because it shows I have hidden uh, intentions Negative intentions But I have something to say Do not lose the bigger picture. You could be the greatest intellectual in the world and prove God's existence through the argument of consciousness, but you could go straight into Jahannam. Remember what this is all about. The whole point of the Quranic way of thinking is to get you to affirm the rububi of Allah, the creative agency of Allah. In other words, his ability to create consciousness in the physical world. And from that, to affirm something about Allah Something how about how you should relate to him and something about yourself That is the Quranic strategy in the Quran Allah already gives you the conclusions And he's telling you to refer to reality within yourself or to the external world And he's telling you what cycle and cognitive state you must be in Reflect, ponder, be people of insight, use your brain Ask questions, the sa'ileen so he's telling you to be in a psycho-cognitive spiritual state He's already giving you the conclusions They're Already in the Quran when he refers to natural phenomena He gives you the conclusions And he's telling you to refer to Allah is trying to tell you and teach you how to think in a profound way It's like almost a spiritual and intellectual and existential algorithm When you say 1 plus X is equal to 2 You know that X is one, it's the unknown It forces you to think about what is X Similarly, Allah already gives us conclusions about who He is How we should relate to Him How we should relate to Him And something about ourselves And Allah tells us to refer to reality The physical world, externally and internally To try and figure that out And He advises us to be in certain cognitive and spiritual states the And so on and so forth Use your brain Ponder, reflect, ask questions And then That should force you to In a particular way of thinking That's missing in the academic intellectual discourse That's missing in the Dawah as well In due respect We need to revive A Quranic way of thinking I was on a podcast a few weeks ago and they said, talk to us about critical thinking. I said, no, I'm going to teach you about Quranic way of thinking. We need to revive a Quranic way of thinking. Because when it comes to these intellectual postulations about the microcosm, us, the physical human being and the spiritual human being and the macrocosm, the universe itself, we're very great at unpacking this the philosophical gymnastics and intellectualisms, but we're very poor at concluding the most important thing, which is the fact that, Sorry, Which is the fact that Allah is worthy of our adoration Of our love Our obedience Our humility And the fact that we should Extensively praise Him uh, Be ultimately grateful to Him And direct all of these acts of worship to Him alone He is the King of all kings That's what's missing in the discourse And maybe that could be a subject For another seminar in
2: the future JazakAllah for your time Habibi may Allah reward you you know this is no doubt um, you know original research that you've conducted here as uh, you know I've personally not seen any Muslim or even non-Muslim apologists um, flesh this argument out in this level of detail before for a popular audience and you know through your efforts um, Muslims can once again add some more artillery to their intellectual arsenal against naturalism and uh, you know i pray inshallah that muslim apologists will you know particularly benefit from your research and utilize it in their dawah and possibly even further develop it because you know as you know very well the skilled muslim apologists research never really comes to an end you know as we always have to keep up to date um, with with the latest research uh, and findings um i noticed that you you had a you know you had a very interesting bibliography uh, at the end of your presentation, I was hoping that maybe, perhaps, there are some scholarly works that you you'd recommend Muslims read if they wanted to start to you know dip their toes into the subject of the hard problem of consciousness. Um, perhaps, maybe, yeah, you, so you might I think point best... out some some favorites here. Yeah. So the best way to do it is I could
3: uh, PDF the slides to you guys, and you could put it as a link in the description, and they could download um so i mean a good start is Ravoncio's book on consciousness um it's called where is he uh r he should be here somewhere yeah it's called consciousness the science of subjectivity that's actually a good start that Mm -hmm. would be a good starting Mm -hmm. book i would argue um Another good start is Sham Chalmers' book. Uh, the particular one that I think I recommend would be The Character of Consciousness.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you have Janaro Rocco, which is a consciousness, it's is quite thin, it's an easy read. Um, you have Talis's book for sure, Raymond Talis's book. That's a good start as well. Okay. Um, who else would I recommend? uh the other one i recommend is there are, there are various
2: journal articles yeah, yeah, which yeah. are very good as well yeah i think as uh, people start reading those books that you just suggested now they're going to see the references and start you know uh scattering out yeah yeah, out. yeah for if sure they want to they sure. they go further but if someone just wanted to you know a very preliminary you know uh uh introduction and maybe not to dive in too deep but would like to still read something uh, i guess those, the, those those books that you recommended are uh, Yes, for sure. So. But as you can
3: see, oh. a lot of the stuff here are journals, the books on specific topics that relate to the wider topics. Uh, it's also like uh, encyclopedia uh, uh, entries. So it's putting everything together. But um, those those would be a good start. hamza <laughs>
2: This uh, very detailed and beneficial presentation. Um, so we're very grateful uh, that you're able to deliver this No it's
3: lucky for the opportunity ma la bless you
2: lucky here barakallahu feekum and with that i'm going to part you and our listeners with the islamic greetings of assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh